WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 267. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the ABG headquarters building in a northern Atlanta suburb. In today's episode, beating up passengers and airline meltdowns, more news, your feedback, and a new old Pilot Plane Tales episode. The second Anders, Andy Anderson interviews part two. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 267 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. Uh, the place where a bunch of pilots hang out every week and more. Uh, to talk about aviation, because we are uh, aviation nuts, ab geeks, or whatever you want to call us. And uh, let's see, joining me today to kind of get into this ab geekery is a psychiatrist, a doctor, Doctor. a pilot, strength training junkie, and an IPA connoisseur. We have the wonderful, the beautiful Dr. Steph. Aw, thank you so much for that lovely introduction, as always. And yes, I've been working on the strength training, been squatting 60 pounds on the bar, which is a personal best for me. Very excited about it. And exploring some new IPAs. Today's choice is the Southern Sixer IPA, a new offering from Highland Brewing Company in Asheville, North Carolina, where I was this past weekend. I flew up there and we'll probably get into that a little bit later, I'm sure. Yeah, we want to back. hear about that. I, I yeah. saw that uh, on the on the Twitters. It was a interwebs. lovely, lovely weekend for flying. So awesome, awesome! I did some squatting too uh, in the past few days, but it had nothing to do with weight training. All right. Uh, also joining us from across the pond, we have a former fighter pilot, professional photographer, commercial airline pilot extraordinaire, flying those heavy Airbuses for Acme Red, Captain Nick Anderson. Hi there. <laughs> Pull up. Pull up. <laughs> Great to be back on the show. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'm feeling a bit second eleven today, so I'm hoping uh, a bit of old speckle hen will uh, help me through the show. And uh, I-, I always hate feeling like this because I sit and whinge about our life, but we know we just love doing it. So uh, don't get me wrong, guys, when I tell you that I'm feeling horrible because I've had a, uh, a lousy uh, night flight home. Uh, don't believe me, because in a few days I want to go and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> we understand. And like you said, the, the old speckled hen will surely get you through. That's what uh, it's Yes, she will. She, yes. Uh, she's picking my toes. Now, does, does Julie know you're calling her that? That's really <laughs> awful. <laughs> it is a bit unfair, isn't it? Yeah. That's rude. That's why, that's why she's gone to bed. Because it's like nearly 11 o'clock here. Oh, dear. Oh. 
Do you like that music? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, we'll uh, catch up with you here in a moment. But first, we'd like to also introduce our other airline pilot. Uh, well, let me get this going first. His theme music, the Harley in the background, cranking up. Former regional pilot and now Mad Dog operator extraordinaire for Acme Air Mainline. We have Dana. Well, good afternoon, folks. And, of course, uh, over there in England, Captain Nick, Seth, Jeff. Great to see you guys again. Thank you for having me back. And, um, yeah, just like uh, you guys, just kicking back here in the South Carolina tonight. Um, Hello, just neighbor. Just down the road from doctors. Hello, neighbor. That's about yes. an hour, an hour and a half, maybe, at the most uh, from you. Yeah, at the most. Um, hey, next time, do that trip on a Thursday. Because those are days I could... Come hang out. Yep. Oh, well. Are you in Columbia? Yeah, I'm in Columbia. Yeah. Um, Steph has yeah, joined me a few times uh, when I had a nice mm-hmm. long Columbia layover. Works out well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I only have, I've only been here 32 hours. So Wow. Yeah. Nice. Just, just the wrong yeah. day. So yeah. wrong day. just a little so later in the week and we'll hang out. Perfect. So uh, just uh, hanging out. Got to walk around the uh, campus of uh University of South Carolina, very pretty campus. Um, Great mascot. To, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I did take a photo of the mascot. Go Cox. Go Cox. Yes. What? The Game Cox. That's Game Cox. Game Cox. Oh, I have a bird, I think. Well, that's it's a bird. bird. I, took, I did take a photo Actually, of the bird. For those that are watching. Let me, let me go get my, um, I've got a hat. I'll be right back. But hmm. keep talking. Okay. You've got a cock See? hat? <laughs> oh, my goodness. See? That's, that's. Quite literally the largest cock I've ever seen. A rooster Ooh, that is a nice cock there you're showing a picture of, Dana. <laughs> big, big rooster. And, and now, that thing was it's it's gotta be twelve twelve foot tall. Wow. At least. Yeah, we're talking about birds, yeah. folks. If you're not watching the video, please please yes. uh, pardon our We're talking our about language. the South Car- Carolina South Carolina Gamecocks. And I actually commented when I got off got off the airplane last night that uh oh there you go. Put it yeah, up there I, again. I wasn't Steph had, what does it yeah. say? Nope. Cox it's, University it's true. of Southern Cox South University Carolina. of South Carolina. Nice. Here you go. And that's yep. what it looks like. Yeah. Got right there I'm showing everybody. Yeah. Wow. That's a that's a big bird there. So bird. all y'all so, mine's out of the gutter. It's a bird. Yeah, really? And what is wrong with you? We're people? proud of the mascot. Here in- <laughs> it was it was nice to walk around there and uh, got off the airplane last night and I, I turned around to flight and I said, you know, I take offense to that. She says, well, why do you take offense to that? I said, because I'm a male and they get cocks all over the place. And then she said, well, I, I don't. I, I guess I get that. I said, well, then I guess why are we taking offense to like the Raiders? You know, we should change their name too, or the. Uh, um, Washington Redskins, yeah. Really? These are these are birds, so we'll leave it with <laughs> yeah. birds. Yeah. Let's not on. dive into political correctness uh, yet, anyway, on our show. No, no, I'm, I'm just playing. Yeah. I'm just playing around. So, know, anyways, uh, University of South Carolina, beautiful. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, great campus. Um, walked into the. They have an orientation today, and I got to see the president of the school give an orientation. I was quite impressed by that. Oh, nice. Uh, and went walked down by the river, which I was quite surprised at the flow of the, uh, is that the Savannah River that runs through here? Um, through Columbia? No, I don't think so. 
I have to look and see. I don't remember. I yeah, have to look. I, I thought it was, but I, I, I forgot to look. But anyways, yeah, it was it was it a is. very pleasant day. Got warm. And then I was very highly disappointed because I was really going to go ahead and have a bourbon. I haven't drank all week. I was going to have a bourbon because there's a place here in uh, Charleston called Bourbon, no less. Hmm. I walked or in Columbia. there. Do- <laughs> Whatever. It's, they both start with Close C. Back. Yeah. What did I say? Charleston. Charleston. Sorry. Charleston. Yeah, I'm... Yeah. I even I haven't even had a drink, <laughs> so, and and I was uh, I went in uh, Columbia and I went to this place called Bourbon, and walked in there and they said, well we're not open till four and I said, oh, I'm not going to walk all the way back here. Okay, so I didn't have my bourbon. Oh, well, so here I sit. Now you know it's there, it's and the next there. time you have a Columbia layover on a Thursday, we'll go to Bourbon. There you go. Ooh, After 4 p.m. Fun. By the way, that's, speaking that of sounds like fun. another city mm-hmm. in Charleston, I mean in, in Charleston, in South Carolina, Charleston, <laughs> I was just there uh, yesterday. Yeah, I left this morning and uh, we got in early enough to uh, the co-pilot I'm flying with is the guy that uh, our thing is to go and just check out uh, barbecue if we can. Mm-hmm. And so we were in early enough that we had barbecue for both lunch and dinner. And uh, we started with um, uh Sticky Fingers, I think it's called Sticky Fingers, um, down near Hyman's in the in the in the market uh, mm-hmm. on on uh, Meeting Street, and that was okay. And then for dinner, though, Dana, if you ever go to Charleston or any of you out there, uh, and you like barbecue, go to this place called Smoke, and it's on King Street. Mm-hmm. I've heard. I've been there. Oh, my. I've been there. It's very good. And I, you know what I had? I had. I've never had this before. Smoked pastrami. Ooh. And it was like a Reuben with smoked pastrami, and it was such a strong smoke flavor. It was just amazing. It was a great sandwich. So um, I highly recommend that. Anyway, so Nick. Yes, sir. You just returned um, today, I guess, earlier today uh, from um, a trip, and you were over in New York City. Tell us about that. It was a it was a fine trip actually. I've done a couple in New York's uh, pretty close to each other, but this one was special because uh, I was going to hold a, a meetup down there and just see if there's anyone wanted to join me for a beer. But um, being uh, uh, Passover, I thought there'll be a lot of people actually on the tenth who went with we were their families, so we're probably. Uh, you know, we're going to miss a few people. And one of those was Roger Stern, who said uh, he couldn't make it because he was going to have a dinner with his family. And then he turned around and said, well, you know, if you don't get a lot of takers, perhaps you'd like to join us. And I thought, what a wonderful invitation uh, to go to a Passover Cedar. And I've never been to one before, so I thought this is an opportunity I cannot miss. And this, for me, this is one of the great things about our job. We get around the world. We meet fascinating people. We get the opportunity to do things that we never normally would. And I've got to thank Roger and his wonderful family uh, very much indeed because uh, it was a, such a lovely evening. It was a lovely uh, family meal with a lot of special significance uh, and uh, introduced me to... Uh, uh, an aspect of uh, the Jewish faith that I wouldn't have uh, known about before. Uh, anyway, I was welcomed into their house uh, as a one as a guest and and had a really very pleasant evening. Uh, his wife and his two kids, great company. They had some friends uh, in as well, so it was a really. Um, 
joyous um, meal full of good conversation and fantastic food. And then uh, I eventually wound my way back to the hotel uh, on the train. And when I got in, it was kind of like uh, getting close to one in the morning in New York time. That would have been 6 a.m. UK time. (laughs) So I was feeling pretty tired. And unfortunately, when you're in that kind of body clock thing, uh, you're so tired, you go to sleep. But then a few hours later, your body's saying, well, it's like eight or nine in the morning. (laughs) Why are you sleeping? Wake up. Yes. Wake up. right. Yeah, everything in your body that normally kicks off in the morning and needs attention starts working. And hmm. uh, even if you're sleepy and want to and want to stay in bed, you've still got to keep jumping up, and going to the loo, and things like that. So I got a bit disturbed sleep, uh, and then when I flew home uh, a few hours later, uh, I, uh, I when I landed this morning into London, I was dead absolutely dead. I was really rather worried on the drive home that I was going to drift off uh, at some point. So I actually had the roof down. It was uh, eight degrees centigrade. Well, that's so, like, oh. so I put, <laughs> put the roof down so that I would get blasts of cold air and wouldn't uh, fall asleep. But yeah, I, I had the top and, off my car on the way to work this morning too, but it was like 15 degrees. Yeah, that's, that's manageable. I've got the heater yeah. on, but yeah. uh, I tell you, it was, yeah. But that sounds like such a wonderful you, evening. Oh, go ahead. Oh, it was. It was. I have to ask you, Nick. Did you have some traditional Jewish food? Did you have some matzo balls? Uh, well, uh, I can't remember the names of it all. Uh, I had. We, we. I. I was a little late in arriving because I. Uh, um, because I had to catch the train up. So uh, uh, by the time I got there, we we were on to uh, soup with little uh, uh, doughy balls in, which was delicious. Uh, um, yeah, either, they're either known as matzo ball or sometimes they'll call them canadians. Okay. And well, uh, then we had some flatbread or some you know, like crispy uh, um, matzo, matzo with uh, some chopped uh, apple cinnamon uh, stuff on top, which was delicious. Uh, that's that's and- actually the stuff that hold the, the bricks together. Yes, that's, the name that's what they said because it was uh, yep. it was an, represented an element of building the pyramids. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, and uh, then we moved on to a fabulous brisket, and uh, that was really really delicious with almonds and all sorts of other clever things in it that made it taste fantastic, and uh, uh, also chicken uh, as well. And then uh, a, a lovely uh, meringue cake in the uh, to finish off. Uh, so uh, the the food was great. So you, you didn't have. I, I missed some of the initial bit, um, the salted eggs and things. So um, I missed some of that. But uh, the, what what I had was fabulous. Did you have any gefilte fish? Uh, nope. Uh, yes, I did. Yes, it was a kind of a. Yes, that's one one I forgot about. It was uh, like a kind of fish uh, flavored. Um, what was I going to say? It's, it's processed. It's processed fish turd. Well, it looks like a turd. It's basically. <laughs> and then you put. Then you put the, is it like this, I, I've actually. Yeah. So I've never actually had gefilte fish. I'm, I'm imagining something oh, though, great. like the spam of fish. Is that like? It, well, it, it, it like, was like a mousse. Thing? It was like a firm mousse, yes. okay. fishy, fishy flavored, and it wasn't at all bad. It was very pleasant. And I did. Did you put any um, um, horseradish on it? Yes, it was. And that yeah, was strong. Man, that was I'm jealous. I haven't had Passover dinner. Passover dinner almost sounds like uh, Dana's oh, working. 
might be Jewish. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking. I'm salivating at the lips here. <laughs> I was anyway, getting hungry until I heard about the Gewelta fish or whatever. <laughs> I love Gewelta fish. I, I always can't wait for Passover to be over so I can go, I can get my, my, go get my pilot uh, discount and go get my uh, Gefilte fish <laughs> on sale. So, so it was great. And uh, we, we did discuss uh, the origins of each of the dishes and talked about uh, uh, you know, what was going on at this time uh, in the origins of the faith. So uh, I, I found that uh, a fascinating education as well. And, and Roger, of course, is a great raconteur. And his family are wonderful. So uh, I did have a great night. Thank you, Roger. Wow, that, that sounds like an amazing experience, and I, I, I'm jealous because I've never had that experience myself, Nick, so hopefully one of these days I'll get to uh, enjoy a Seder. I might invite you over to my house for dinner. Yeah, there we go. Passover dinner. All Ooh, right. Yeah. Um, really? I'll take it from then. Yeah. Um, okay. You know how good of a chef I am, and I can cook. I can yeah. do a Passover dinner. Yes, yes. Dana is a great cook, a great mm-hmm. chef. Pass when Passover is over the weekend, not during the week, so I'm gone working. Although I do have to say, I did not have any bread or any known bread products so far this week, so I'm been a good boy. Oh, look at you! Great. Mm. Okay, so we uh, heard from Nick and we heard from Dana. Now, how about Steph? How has yes. your week been? Uh, my week has been much better. Uh, if you listen to the past two shows, it's been kind of a rough two weeks prior to that, but this week has been very restorative. Um, work has been lighter than usual. Um, had had good days at work. Uh, last weekend was excellent. I had a day Saturday where I did not do much of anything. I did a little bit of work around the house, tried to get caught up on the usual domestic chores, laundry, cleaning, that type of stuff. Sat down on the dock for a little while out in the nice uh, uh, sunshine and warm weather that we've been having. And Taco's going to come join me, so hopefully he'll be quiet here for the time being. Um, but then on Sunday, I rented the Cirrus SR22 and flew over to Asheville for the day. Um, it was a f- beautiful day for flying. Um, left out of Concord around 11, 11.30 in the morning. Went, uh, planned a, I, I filed and planned a flight up over the, uh, going over the mountains um, into Asheville, which was just gorgeous. Got some good pictures going across the mountains there. One of my best landings ever to, to toot my own horn into Asheville. One of the ones where you <laughs> touch down and you go, you go, did I just, did I just hit the ground? Like, did that? Yeah. yeah. Am I, okay. am I'm I on the ground? Am I on the ground? Am I down? Yeah. Uh, Ooh, don't you love that? that? Oh, and it was perfect. Cause you know, it was, you get into Asheville and you get some thermal stuff going on and a little bit of, you know, the, the air is just not as smooth from the mountains and, and all of that going on. And, um, so you feel like you're working for it a little bit, and then all of a sudden it's just this perfect touchdown. You're like, that was awesome. So the problem with flying to Asheville, though, is that as soon as you get out of the plane, you're immediately surrounded by all of the best beer in the world, which if you have to fly back home later on, you're not going to be partaking in unless you've got more than eight hours, which I did not. Oh, so yeah, so a little bit water. of a bummer there. But uh, <laughs> I had I had some very nice fresh squeezed orange juice for brunch mm-hmm. at a brewery where everyone else was drinking beer. And I was the only person, I think, in the entire restaurant except for the dogs not drinking anything alcoholic. Oh. But that was okay. Um, I, was, I was fine with that. I had lovely, um, I think they called it brunch a la mer. So some great seafood. Um, 
all kind of tossed together in a, a dish with an egg on top for brunch. And that was really, really nice. And then we went oh. to, um, took the dog out to one of the nearby lakes and hiked around for a little while and kind of ate up the entire afternoon doing that. Um, got some ice cream and head back to the airport and flew back home. Um, I, you know, as much as I love, you know, basic GA flying, you know, you get your basic six pack in an aircraft, the, the Cirrus SR-22 is just so nice, um, you know, with the Garmin perspective setup that they have and the autopilot where you can actually, you know, set all that up and, you know, you're still flying, you're still monitoring it, but it's nice not to have to be hand flying the entire trip. So I certainly have gained a new appreciation for that. Um, but it's it's just such a nice aircraft to to fly. I'm really, really enjoying that plane. So um, had a great weekend. This week up till now has been fantastic. Um, looking forward to a long weekend. I have Friday off, so I don't really have any plans. Um, just going to be kind of relaxing. So. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, marvelous. Well, nothing's Sounds been really great. going on with me and in, in, in my life last week or so so i guess we could move on to the news <laughs> nothing's been going on in your week wait, no. wait, wait, wait. where's the where's the needle <laughs> off the record for that <laughs> all right so back up hold the press it was what happened you know, in your week this week? i really miss all of you out there and i know that um you know normally i'm pretty active and like the uh the, t- the twittering and the, all that kind of stuff and uh, this week i've been so saturated with just stuff that i just couldn't do it i mean i i ended up so many times in a hotel room just like with in front of my computer and just staring like and maybe a little drool coming around <laughs> <of> my mouth <laughs> seriously it's like I, I can't i can't do anything and i just shut it down and i thought i'm just gonna go to bed sleep um so if you'll remember the last time we recorded i think it was right before my recurrent training yep yeah. uh yes yeah. that's correct that's so i did correct. that and that, that was actually pretty good. That worked out pretty well this year, or this cycle. At uh, ACME, we do it every nine nine months now. And then uh, the next couple of days, uh, I was off, but I thought, mm, I'm going to pick up uh, some, I need to pick up some time. So I picked up a uh, two-day white slip, and I think we went to, I think that was one to Charleston. Not sure, I don't remember anymore. But anyway, uh, was scheduled for Wednesday through Friday. Uh, for a regular three-day trip and oh yeah on the on the two-day trip I noticed that you know I I was having some trouble with my um, allergies and stuff like that and on this it was just like one leg on one day on Monday and one leg on Tuesday and I thought you know I'm starting to have some trouble clearing my ears so I thought you know I should probably not push it and because my allergies were actually kind of getting a little worse and I thought I'm just going to call in sick for this this trip because I haven't called in sick for in a while you know yeah. what? You can just tell the truth. You just didn't want to come to Charlotte and hang out with me. That's that's fine. No, I, I was really looking. That was the worst part of it just because kidding. I had a I had a uh, well, I was supposed to have, and, it, and actually, I followed the uh, pilots that were on that rotation to see what they were doing, and they actually had a pretty decent um, uh, Charlotte layover. But I was disappointed. That was the the downside of that. But uh, because Steph and I were going to meet up, and and uh, that just weren't didn't work out. So. Uh, Wednesday, the first day of that three-day trip, um, it was uh, the the weather uh, came through the southeastern United States, uh, really hit uh, Alabama and Georgia 
uh, especially Atlanta, pretty hard. Tornadoes and severe thunderstorms and severe hail and all that kind of stuff. And it basically did a number on our uh, operation at Acme uh, in Atlanta. And uh, I, I forgot how many flights were canceled uh, that day. I think at least 1,600 flights canceled that day. Um, and for the whole period thereafter, it, it, I think it's close to... I just heard on the news uh, when I was coming home that uh, the cost to Acme is going to be like $125 million for this meltdown that occurred. Um, anyway, when this is happening, I was really feeling bad because I'm at home and I'm supposed to be on this trip and I'm following, I, mean, I might as well have been, been on this trip because I'm following each flight and seeing, you know, how they're making it through the weather and where, where they're going to end up and what, you know, what I would have done if I were on that trip. And then finally, I, I was just feeling so bad and guilty for, because it seemed that the news was saying that there weren't pilots available to fly all these airplanes and all these passengers are stranded and everything else. So I thought, gosh darn it, I think I'm good enough to to call in well. So on Friday, I uh, about midday, I called in well. And I knew that as soon as I would do that, that they would be calling me up to assign me some, some kind of flying. So I, before anybody, I mean, nobody called me. I just got my uniform on and I got out of the house and went to the uh, MARTA train, got on the train, headed down to the airport. I got to the airport, and I'm thinking, well, nobody's called me yet. I'm going to go down to the pilot lounge. Went down to the pilot lounge, and there were, I've never seen that many Acme pilots in the pilot lounge ever in my life. There must have been two, three hundred, maybe more pilots down there. And I'm thinking, I thought we didn't have any pilots to fly these flights. And so I went into the chief pilot's office and I said, Hey, I don't even know if I'm legal. I just called him well, but if you need to use me for something and they go, what are, you know, what do you fly? And I said, I'm, I'm 88 captain. And they go, okay, stay right there. <laughs> and, uh, they said, I think we need somebody to fly to Dallas tonight and then come back tomorrow morning. And I went, okay. So I did that. And then in route, um, they, um, no, not even in route. When we got to Dallas, I got there. The co-pilot was there, uh, not the one that I was flying with. Uh, another co-pilot was there to fly that airplane back to Atlanta. And he said, uh, do you have a captain on board deadheading to fly this back? And I said, uh, don't think so. And so we made some calls and uh, was able to get a hold of somebody uh, to uh, the dispatcher. And I said, look, here we are. We have a flight. We don't have a captain. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to stay here and cancel this flight? Or do you want to fly me back to Atlanta and potentially cancel the flight the next morning. And they said, go ahead and just fly it back. So I got back really late on Friday night, so late that, uh, as many of you know, I, I use uh, the uh, light rail system here in Atlanta. And uh, because I parked in a remote parking place, because I, you know, we also have this other thing going on in Atlanta, the, uh, the interstate bridge that collapsed and because of the fire. And so I knew that the traffic was going to be bad and I knew there were going to be a lot of people, um, on Marta and there would probably be trouble finding a place to park. So I parked in a remote parking lot that you take a bus from there to go to the Marta station. And so by the time I got back, it was like midnight and the buses stop at 11. And so I thought, okay, how am I going to get home? So I, I used Uber 
to take me to the parking lot where the van was parked. And I think it was about 1.30 in the morning by the time I finally made it back to to the house. I was I was whipped. But uh, at least I felt I felt good that I was able to help out in some way. But the bottom line of all this is that in the news, it made it sound like uh, the pilots and flight attendants weren't available to fly all these flights because of duty rigs and rest, um, uh, whatever, uh, issues. But in truth, the problem was that nobody could contact crew tracking and crew scheduling, the people that were trying to assign crews to airplanes to fly all these passengers that were stranded in Atlanta and everywhere else in our system. And uh, that's what caused the big problem. And it was very, very frustrating. And uh, I don't know how much we want to talk about that, but it, it, it just uh, it wiped me out. And of course, they still needed people to uh, fly um, the next day, couple days. And so I went ahead and uh, volunteered to fly some more. So I flew on Saturday and Sunday. And then I had my regular trip Monday through Wednesday. And here I am. I'm back finally from that. And um, I was just so exhausted and frustrated because you could not, you, you call up the crew scheduling people or the crew tracking people at Acme and nobody would answer or it would pick up and then would hang up. And I don't know. What do you, what do you, is there anything else you can add to that, uh, Dana? You're my hero, Jeff. Huh? You're my hero. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not my, uh, my, You're my hero. So, so no, this is, I'm, actually, only, I'm only playing with you. Actually, yeah, I, I know what, what I want to say about this is, it's kind of stupid because looking back at it, I should have just stayed home and not called in well. And because <laughs> here's the irony of this, Dana. I, I got in because I called him well on the third day of my trip. All the time that I ended up making for that trip went back to the the, uh, the uh, sick bank, the 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 uh, bank of time, the hours that they use to pay me for being sick for the trip. So basically, when I went in and did that Friday night turn to Dallas and back, it was basically for free. I didn't really get anything for that, and. Uh, I should have just and because uh, I didn't Helped realize out. that there were all those Helped people <laughs> there to all those people who to do it. to be somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what yeah, you got I mean, out of it. Yeah, you, you, you got yeah, you, you helped out. So you know, I don't look at myself as a hero. I look at myself as a big sucker for doing that. <laughs> I mean, here's this guy coming in. He's he's really kind of supposed to be on sick leave, and he's coming in to fly one of these flights. And there are probably another hundred captains that fly my airplane that could have done the same darn thing. They're already there anyway because they're supposed to be flying a trip. I mean, oh. well, you know, my my experience was very similar. We, uh, um, I was out on a, a four day Saturday on Monday, and had a thirty plus hourly over in Manchester when everything hit the fan. So I was kind of out of out of it. But then I got the call at four o'clock in the morning that they had canceled my outbound flight with a reroute through New York and. Uh, I was on an RJ with a 30-minute connect time in, in LaGuardia with weather in New York. I looked at it and I said, there's just no way. So we spent I spent four hours on hold. Yep. With, uh, on hold? With a, on with hold. On there, hold. With there are people. Wow. And that's, that's normal. Still that, couldn't get through. Yeah. Uh, people were on yeah, hold even, for two hours, four hours, that. even six hours, I think, was the, like I'd heard somebody say I, they've been on the. On I the, actually. 
and I actually never spoke to anybody. What ended up happening is I ended up deviating because they were going to deadhead, and I couldn't get anybody to tell that I, them that I was going to deviate. Captain had to be back for surgery, uh, pre-op surgery on Friday morning. So I was very ingenious and, and figured out a way to get us back to uh, Atlanta. As of Friday, they still didn't know that we were still back in Atlanta. I fortunately, when I was uh, sitting there waiting on the flight to head out of Boston, um, I called the Chief Pilot Support Center. And finally, after about an hour on hold with them, I finally got somebody and told them what we're doing. They said, yeah, don't worry about it. Just uh, uh, we'll send them a message. And that's the last I heard of it. So as far as they were concerned, there's really nothing I could. I mean, I couldn't get anybody to tell anybody because we actually, our plan was to day out of where we were. It was in Manchester, New Hampshire. So we moved down to Boston on a bus. And if we could have gotten some increased scheduling, we were in, in Boston. And if they needed us any place to help them out, we could have actually been there a lot quicker from Boston because a lot more flights everywhere, including New York, Atlanta, Detroit, Minneapolis. We could have gone anywhere. And they end up uh, having to cancel flights in Boston because, well, they had Airbuses sitting there, but they didn't have an 88. I even even asked if they had anything down, you know, remote parking that was uh, wasn't, you know, has been worked on and waiting to be towed up, and they had nothing. So uh, we tried to help out. Um, we would have been glad to fly an airplane someplace for them, but we just didn't have any airplanes to fly, and there's no way to get through to anybody. So, um, yeah, uh, legality issues can- became an issue because. Um, um, everybody was flying and, and doing what they could do, and then they timed out, and then they lost con- complete control of where yeah. the crews lost were. control. No communication. Yep. That no that communication. is what happened here. All yeah. these all these pilots and flight attendants. We all wanted to do something because we were, but we were helpless. We could not communicate what we were doing, where we were, you know, how much duty we had, and so we had all these airplanes. Nobody to fly them. Well, we did, but we couldn't communicate it. And it you just like, couldn't coordinate the crews with the actual no. planes, with the schedule, right. with the yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, I mean, working I, for a, a big company, I completely understand how that goes. Sometimes, sometimes, I mean, there's there's definitely pluses and minuses to working for a big company or a small company. Um, you know, sometimes these things seem to happen with big companies. In our in in our situation, um, you know, in, in my day job as a physician our everything we do is tied to the computer system if the computer system goes down we can't actually function like we can't check people in to be seen we can't but the computer has nothing to do with what i actually do but if the computer's not working there's nothing i can do about it so it kind of feels like the same situation i've run into that a time or two and you know you just sit there and you go well (laughs) i i don't know what to say i don't know what to do i'm here i'm willing to to do my job but you know i just can't actually do it because of the constraints of the system and that kind of sounds like what happened and i have to say that you know most of the people that um i you know um talked to and and ran into during this whole thing uh they were they were awesome i mean they were very very under i thought more understanding about this than they should have been um Mm -hmm. uh, and uh so i mean i um, my hat's off to uh, the passengers uh that fly on acme um see now mike Jeff, yeah. my experience yeah. in Boston, of course, going to stand Bostonians, right? That was my complete <laughs> and total opposite experience. As a matter of fact, I Jeff went was dealing and changed with the out of uniform. You were dealing I, with the people from Boston. There's, yeah, yes. I was I was not in uniform. My the guy I was with, he was in uniform, and let me tell you what, he went and changed because it was it was <laughs> it, they were canceling flights left and right, and you know, 
I, I, I know some people that still work up in Boston. I said, can't you fly this airplane? I said, well, I could probably fly it once, but that would be my last time ever flying it. <laughs> you know, because if, if I tried to go figure out how to fly the Airbus, um, <laughs> and then I took that the FAA would probably not be very happy with me. Right. But uh, Richard actually had a Richard Popham had a very good question. It's all done by phone, and the answer to that question is uh, more or less yes. Uh, there is notifications that come out uh, via a text that you can get, um, but if you need to contact the company, the only way to get them is on the phone. The other frustrating thing about this is, remember back in August of last year, we had this big computer meltdown and we thought, you know, they said, well, never again. We're going to fix this. We're going to make sure that this can never, ever happen again. This was actually worse than the meltdown that we had in August. Uh, So basically, the recovery from the recovery from the events of earlier in the week is, is what happened. You know, it just failed. And uh, I think we're finally getting back on track, uh, but it's it's just um, it's just so frustrating when when you're the kind of person that wants everything to be right because we've built up this reputation of being uh, the on-time airline and no cancellations and a whole bunch of you know, span of days and everything else. We are very proud of that. And then when all this happens, and you're just helpless because you can't let people know that hey, I'm here. We have a crew. We can fly this thing. But nobody, there's nobody to contact. There's no communication. Oh, frustrating. Anyway, hey, you know, there were some good that came from this because on Friday night when I was out there flying to, uh, waiting to go to Dallas-Fort yes. Worth, I got a I got a tweet from uh, somebody uh, that is part of the APG community. And he said, hey, I'm here. I'm waiting for a flight over in the A concourse. And I was over in T and I said, hey, you know, I, I'm kind of busy. I, do, I was just assigned this gate. And then when I was putting stuff in the computer, waiting for the co-pilot to come uh, to show up. Um, another guy that was jump seating came down, he knocked on the window and, and he goes like, you know, motions to me to come out. And I said, yeah, what's What's up? And he goes, well, apparently you're some kind of a celebrity or something because there's a guy up here <laughs> that wants to, you know, meet with you. And I said, huh? And I thought, oh, I know who this is. And so I went up to the uh, gatehouse and I recorded this. Go for it. Captain Jeff here. I'm in the Atlanta airport. It's just crazy here. It's Friday, the what day is it? Seventh of uh, March, and um, many of you know I was uh, sick earlier this week, and I saw the uh, airport in Atlanta was having a meltdown, and they were just scrambling, begging pilots to come in and fly. And I thought, oh, okay, so I called him well, and I headed down to the airport knowing that they could use me for something. They said, we need a pilot to fly to Dallas-Fort Worth, and I said, I'm your man. So I also noticed about the same time I was getting a, a Twitter notification from Manuel. Yes, and this is Manuel, a huge follower of the podcast. I've been spending or wasting, I don't know how many hours <laughs> listening to it. Wasting, yeah. <laughs> but it has been great. I am not a pilot. I am actually an electrical engineer, but I have developed huge passion for commercial aviation over the, the last years and being of a technical mindset I really enjoy listening to the podcast I definitely miss Miami Rick yeah we all do really yeah, yeah, he's gonna be back he'll be back yeah that's but, what he tells us yeah <laughs> but I, I really love the hard time that you and Nick give to each other so yeah. that's that's a lot of fun to hear yeah yeah well, I'm glad you I'm glad somebody enjoys that absolutely <laughs> absolutely so yeah definitely uh, very chaotic here in Atlanta tons of people everywhere almost no place to sit but extremely excited I was able to actually reach out to Captain Jeff 
he was already in the cockpit getting ready and he came out to the gate. So thank you, Captain Jeff. Yeah, I was like, uh, when they told me I was going to do this Dallas flight, which is already like, I don't know, two and a half, three hours late, I thought I better get down here. My co-pilot hasn't shown up yet. He's coming in from Baltimore or something. And so I just thought I'd better get everything going in the cockpit, all the pre-flight stuff done. In fact, when I go back down, I'll probably go and do the walk around because I don't think he's arrived yet. yet so. Anyway, uh, but I'm glad that you persisted and you showed up to my gate. Absolutely. Because uh, that's awesome. I'm glad, uh, glad I had a chance to see you, meet you in person, and, uh, and record this. And I can say that um, Captain Jeff's uniform, even though it sets Acme uh, Airlines, it's very similar to a local airline here. So I'm a little confused. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's just history. Very, very similar. <laughs> All right. All right. Nice meeting. Yeah, same here. Thank you. Okay, it was great. And yes, I said March, and so that's how frazzled I was. <laughs> I, I listened to that today, and I'm thinking, oh, that wasn't March. It was April. <laughs> Just a couple. Well, of in, in the middle of that, Nick said to, to text us, he's like, March seventh, and I totally missed it. And I was like, what yeah, about it? That was I like, heard oh, it. I thought, what no, are it's you not March. <laughs> Good listening skills, people. Yeah. Well, uh, just shows paying attention, Jeff. <laughs> so and manual, that's not the was, first uh, time I've listened to that either. I listened to it when you sent it to the feedback folder, <laughs> so I missed it the first time as well. Which, oh, that's okay. That's about me. It was but, great. Yeah, Nick, it was, make, Nick is just on top of it. Yeah, he is. Yeah. He's a sharp guy. Sharp. Was that your uh, your new hip joint squeaking in the background, Jeff? <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, I guess I need to go and get that oiled or something. Yeah. I don't know what that was. <laughs> Actually, that was um, when I walked up to meet with Manuel. I didn't bring my phone. I didn't have anything on me. And he had his iPhone. I said, hey, why don't you do this? You, you know, open the voice recorder app or voice memo or whatever it's called and click that thing. He said, I've never used this before, you know. And so he opens it up and hits that. Just hit that button right there. And we just started talking. And uh, so then he he uh, emailed that uh, file, the audio file to me. But I wish I had known that because I met, uh, I was a very similar scenario. I was on an overnight and uh, coming out of uh, um, Northwest Regional, mm -hmm. um, out of Florida, out of Panama City. Oh, yeah. I was at Panama Northwest City? Florida. Yeah, Northwest Florida, okay. which is uh, Panama City. Is I think that's what what it's called. Uh, it's uh, uh, the ECP, Southwest. Emerald Coast, um, Panama City. Yeah, gotcha. yeah I don't know what they call like it. Or Florida so anyways, beaches or something. <laughs> North Florida beaches. Well, North Florida Beach, something like that, yeah. whatever. It, easy Some crazy thing. thing. So anyways, I'm, I'm going about to go through security, and uh, it's, I don't know, 4, 4.30 in the morning. I'm still half asleep. And I hear, First Officer Dana? <laughs> 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 well, how do you know me? What? Yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> it, it didn't dawn on me until he said, yeah, I, I listened to the podcast. I'm like, oh, wow. It's really So I end up having a nice conversation with Eric. Uh, who's a F-22 Raptor pilot. Oh, nice. Uh, Tyndall. Is it Tyndall? Yes, yeah, Tyndall. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was, he was, yeah, Panama City Tyndall. Mm -hmm. So it was really nice to meet uh, Eric and his wife. Uh, they were heading out on my airplane, as a matter of fact, and uh, it was really, uh, he had a lot of great things to say about that F-22. I don't know if I can say them on air as to what he told top me secret. about it, but top secret stuff. But let me tell you what, it's uh, that's an impressive airplane. So he's looking forward to the uh, airline, airline career, and he uh, really enjoys listening to to our podcast. And it was very nice to meet him. And if I realized I could have recorded that all on my phone, yeah, I would have. Yeah, we'll show you how to do that. Voice memos. Uh, we'll yeah, do the tutorial after the show. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so Eric, hello. If you're listening to episode two sixty seven, great to yeah. have a 
F-22 pilot out there listening. Yeah. Okay. So we have that. And uh, yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. Um, that's a lot. Hey, uh, before we move on, I know yeah. there's we've, we just talked about a whole bunch and haven't even gotten onto the news. Yeah. You know, yeah. Meat of the show yet. Um, do you want me to mention the stuff with uh, oh, Dispatcher yeah. Mike now or after? That, that, that'd be per- um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, actually, he okay. uh, let me. He sent me a um, an audio. Yes. File. And the reason he sent the audio is because. So let me lay the groundwork for this okay. first. Some of you may remember that last fall we had a little um, APG slash flying in life meet uh, fly in meetup uh, in Tacoa, Georgia, and we talked about doing more after the fact and. I'm the one who's been dragging my feet on it. Mike has been very proactive and sent me his schedule weeks ago and I got it and I said, that's great. I'll get right on it. And then I was a slacker. So I apologize for that. But I did finally sit down and take a look at his schedule and my schedule, tried to match up some dates. And it looks like we've come up with some dates when we're going to try and plan some uh, combined uh, fly-in slash meetups. It's really kind of an excuse for me and Mike to go out and fly and we'd like to see you all out there. But we want to get some feedback from anyone who's listening who might be relatively close to where we are so that we can actually have other people meet us and join us. And we'll get to all the dates and times. And if you have that feedback from Mike, since he's the dispatcher here, I gladly let him uh, be in charge of our flight planning for all of this. And he will give some more details right now. Take it away, Mike. Hello, Captain Jeff and the APG crew. It's dispatcher Mike. Sending some feedback with some exciting information for all those in the APG community that were able to attend last fall's fly in in Tacoa, Georgia, and all those who wanted to be there but could not. After some long negotiations, Dr. Steph and I have some dates to announce for upcoming APG flying in life meetups uh and those are may 18th june 10th and august 10th and we're reaching out to the apg community to help us pick a location so here's what i need from the apg community if you're interested in flying and meeting up with us please send me an email with your name and home airport and I will add that to our database a a Google Maps of where we have people in the APG located currently with our current information it looks like a majority of us are located in the um, right along the East Coast Eastern Seaboard Pretty much from Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, all the way up through New York. So that's kind of the area we're looking at. I was thinking somewhere in Southern Virginia uh, or just in Virginia and North Carolina uh, for a meetup. Now there are some restrictions with Dr. Steph's schedule and the two Thursday dates, uh, May 18th and August 10th. We need to stay within about 180 nautical miles of the Concord Airport. That's uh, Kilo Juliet Quebec Fox Airport. So somewhere within 180 nautical miles of there. And those uh, those will be some evening meetups. And 
the other date, June 10th. That can be pretty much anywhere on the eastern uh, eastern seaboard. Uh, again, still trying to target that uh, Virginia, North Carolina area. If you have any suggestions or, like I said, would like to be added uh, to the list, um, please send me an email at contact at flyingandlife.com and I'll get all this organized and we'll have a, we'll have a location for the meetup um, about a week or two prior to the 18th uh, to see where we're going to go. So until then, I look forward to everybody's emails and I look forward to everybody uh, meeting up with us. Hopefully the weather will cooperate. Until then, we'll see you. Thanks, Mike, for the info. And by the way, I, I got a chance to fly with Mike um, on the last meetup and fly in. And uh, that was a great time. We met in Tacoa, Georgia. And we mm-hmm. thought we should do this again and again yes. and again. Yes. He did send as many some, times as we can. So we, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to tell him. Uh, he sent a link to uh, the Google Maps of the airports. And uh, we'll put that in the show notes. And again, his um, email address is contact at flyingandlife.com. And by the way, he happens to be a fantastic podcast host, his podcast, Flying in Life. In fact, he just did a whole series. He just got back from Sun and Flun, Sun and Flun, (laughs) Sun and Fun in Florida. And uh, and if you haven't listened to those uh, podcasts that he put out, kind of shorter ones than what he usually does, but a series of great interviews, he really did a fantastic job. I know the interviewing uh, thing was kind of new to him, but really he just he was he did a great job with those interviews for the different uh, vendors and uh, folks that he he met up with there. Um, So if you haven't checked it out, definitely go check out Flying in Life. Absolutely. Yeah. Interviewing is is not it's a it's a skill. That yeah, not a lot he, of people he was have. very natural at it. So yeah. he did a great job, Mike. We really yep. enjoyed it. So, um, But like you said, three dates that we've got planned coming up, May 18th, June 10th, and I think August 10th was the other one. Two of those are Thursday afternoons, which is why there's kind of a, um, at least for me, I'm only off half a day there. So there's we were trying to put it within a certain nautical mile radius so I can make sure I actually make it there on time, <laughs> you know, to when we actually do the meetup. Um, but as we get closer to those dates, we'll have more information um, depending on what kind of feedback we get from it. We already have a few ideas of places that might be uh, good to go to. Uh, so listen to the next couple of upcoming shows and we'll give some updates on those and hope to see everyone there. And Mike is listening right now, Dispatcher Mike, and he said he had five um, episodes from Sun and Fun. And uh, mm-hmm. I I, enjoy, I don't think I've listened to every single one of them. But I think at least three of the five, and uh, really, were they're all they're all fascinating. Great job, Mike. And then, real quick, speaking of feedback or fee, uh, feedback meetups, and mm-hmm. then I promise I'll let us get on with the show here. Mm-hmm. Um, Pip sent a message to our group earlier today about uh, there's going to be this big solar eclipse in the United States in August of this year, August 21st to be exact. It's basically going to cover the entire U.S. across the center from Oregon all the way down to South Carolina. PIP is going to be in the U.S. for that. And, um, you know, we were kind of talking about potential meetups for that as well. So we don't have any details on that yet, but I just wanted to throw it out there that August 21st, the Great American Total Solar Eclipse of 2017, put it on your calendar. Think about being here. It covers almost the entire state of South Carolina, which is where I am. So... 
I'll just put that out there for now. Party at uh, Lake Wiley. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll have place. to arrange something. <laughs> Bring your bathing suit. That's right. <laughs> or not. Now, all that sounds so much or fun. Not. I feel very jealous that I'm stuck here the other side of the world. Well, bit of Why are you stuck there? Yeah. <laughs> well, even if I come over, it's not for long enough. Well, oh, I'm we sure we can figure something. it out. Yeah, we've, right. got, we've got several months to figure this out. Can you so. pick an airport big enough for me to land a 340, 600 that? Charlotte. Yeah, Charlotte. Doug, got plenty of runway for 10 that. 10 miles up the road. Mm-hmm. Ten, 10 miles of runway? That'll do. <laughs> yes, no, it's 10 miles long. up the road, but it's got, <laughs> how long is the longest runway there? I forget. Oh, uh, it's like 9,000 feet? 10,000 feet? No, probably more. Yeah. I forget. I could long, have whatever. Long look. But it's long enough. You'll yeah. you'll make it. Sounds good. Right. Um, and how about uh, um, Asheville? I mean, wouldn't that be a great place to uh, view that eclipse? Uh no? I don't think it's in the path of totality, but uh, very nearby the Great Smoky Mountain National Park mm-hmm. in southwestern North Carolina mm-hmm. is in the path of totality, and it should be fantastic from there. So, yeah. I was just thinking, you know, that great beer town would be a good place. But, well, it's, you know, it's a good jumping off point. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, anything else? I'm done. Okay. No, I'm done. You sure? All right. Maybe. Um, let's... Um, Let's do some coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Yabba Jabba and you love tea. They got the lyrics wrong. That's the uh, ink spots singing the job drive because we're going to talk about the APG Coffee Fund, your way to support the show financially if you have the financial resources to do so only. And uh, if you would like to, we have a couple different ways to do it. You can learn about them by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And since the last show, a couple folks used the Coffee Fund classic method. We have uh, Jeff Moeller who does a recurring um, donation to the uh, show. We do appreciate that, Jeff. Jeff and Anissa, I think, uh, out in uh, Northern California and uh, got to meet them on a meetup a couple of years ago. Need to be back. I need to get it back out there again. Uh, it was great meeting you, Jeff, and your wife. Thanks again for your continuing support of the APG show. And uh, Jennifer Adams also gave us a nice, generous contribution via the Coffee Fund Classic method using PayPal. And then the other way to do it is you can become a patron of the show via Patreon. And since the last show, uh, a couple of new patrons... Uh, the Plain Faith Podcast, uh, a new producer, and also another producer, Andrew Saylor. And I believe that Andrew, I think that's uh, Rebecca Saylor's son. So welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Coffee Fund cadre, Andrew. Uh, we appreciate you signing up to be a patron. And uh, Dispatcher Mike, the guy we just heard from there, uh, he has uh, bumped up his level of uh, contribution and he is now uh, in the executive producer um, level so we do appreciate that uh, Mike 
And that's it. So, uh, again, if you uh, want to support the show financially, we really appreciate it. It gives us motivation to do the show every week. And, uh, again, you can find out more about the Coffee Fund by heading over to uh, AirlinePilotGuide.com slash coffee. Drop a nickel in the pot, Joe. I take up a slow Waiter, waiter, percolator, I love coffee, I love tea. Oh, that was a nice fade out, wasn't it? Darn it. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Great. I need to fix that. I think that the last show I did I just, that. I just have one thing to say about that. <laughs> what? Potatoes. Potatoes. Potato. <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> Stand by for news. My Paul Harvey imitation. All right, get those you uh, those <laughs> vodka shots ready. We're going to talk about yes, the little altercation uh, over at United Airlines. Actually, let's be fair here. It was not actually United, but a company that was flying for United Republic Airlines. Uh, again, to be fair, a lot of the major airlines have um, regional partners that uh, provide flying and you know of course if you're a passenger on any of these flights you it, it they do everything they can possibly do to make it look like that you're actually on that major carrier uh including acme we have some some uh, regional carriers as well and uh, the uniforms are very similar all of the uh, pas are done so that you really think that you're riding on the on the mainline carrier but um, this uh, affiliate, uh, Republic Airlines, operated flight 3411 just a few days ago. And um, now I have a, an update on this. They said at first that the flight was overbooked, but they wanted to make a clarification to say that uh, the flight was sold out but was not overbooked. Um, not sure how that really you know, impacts the uh, story, but apparently the airplane was loaded, boarded, and then at the last minute, they realized that uh, they needed to get a crew. And again, I don't know if it was a Republic uh, crew or a United mainline crew. Uh, doesn't matter. They needed to uh, get positioned to Louisville. Uh, so they were leaving Chicago, flying to Louisville. And uh, so they thought, well, these are must-fly crew members. And so we're, we're going to have to get them some seats. And so I'm not sure if they attempted to give people a certain amount of money they did okay they did yep so they apparently got up to eight hundred dollars in compensation and had no takers for that much and then i I guess worth of whether it was travel vouchers or you know whatever airlines usually offer so they're not just going to give you eight hundred dollars when you walk off the plane it's usually eight hundred dollars in compensation to fly on the air yeah towards future travel on the airline within a certain time frame is usually how it works yeah now, if they gave you actually cash, I bet they probably could have gotten some people. If they were waving eight, you know, 
one hundred one hundred dollar bills, <laughs> Benjamins. Yeah, I think people would be like me. <laughs> I'll take it. So apparently there was a they, they needed four seats, and uh, there was a younger couple that uh, were the first to be tapped and say, "I'm sorry, but we have to have you leave the airplane." So it was not a voluntary um, thing. They they were mandatorily. Mm-hmm. Uh, forced to leave the airplane and then they came for uh, passenger number three <laughs> passenger number three uh, did not take kindly to the fact that they were forcing him to get off the airplane and he said uh, no I'm a doctor I have patients that I need to see tomorrow I'm not leaving and then um, there were some other things going on here as well but apparently uh, they tried to talk him into leaving the airplane and he was persistent, uh, saying that he was not going to leave. And then security was called and uh, it was a, a branch of the police, uh, kind of um, airport police, aviation police. I'm not sure they're actually part of the Chicago police force or, you know, and I've seen differing reports on that and I'm not entirely clear. Um, but it sounds like it was the Chicago, you know, um, aviation airport. authority police department. So okay. Whether that's Chicago Police Department or just the aviation specific, I don't think it really matters. They were the authorities called in this situation. And because uh, the, the the time that we live in and everybody has a cell phone and has video capability, uh, there were many people that uh, cranked up their cell phones and hit the video button and were, uh, you know, uh, taking video of the situation. And many of us have seen the videos. And look like the first two aviation or airline or whatever you want to call these policemen on board were, were talking to the gentleman, trying to convince mm-hmm. him that he should, she, he should leave. And it wasn't until the third policeman came on board that things really went downhill fast. And uh, they yanked the guy out of the seat. Unfortunately, in doing so, his head hit the armrest on the other side of the aisle and uh, and broke his glasses and bloodied his face and it, it almost looked like he had uh, was knocked unconscious because they were dragging him yeah, literally definitely a, little, a little out of it yeah so. off the airplane yeah. by the arms uh, it was not it was not mm-hmm. good public relations good pr for well there were at least different you know like five or six different cell phone video cameras on it from different angles so it was well covered from yes. a um you know uh eyewitness account perspective yes and not not only that but there were people you know you could hear people basically uh screaming almost oh yeah what are you doing look look what you've done to him it's just not a not a good situation uh from all around now you know we we look back at this and analyze it and think okay what what went wrong here and i think the blame can be can be uh, divvied out um, more than one area. Um, clearly, sure. the way that uh, uh, either United Republic or the gate agent handled this thing may not have been the best way to do it. And we should also maybe be clear that the gate agents aren't always um, either mainline employees for either the airline, uh, you know, the United Mainline Airline, or even the regional airline. Sometimes they're contractors as well. Yeah. So. I'm not sure in this case. I don't I don't think we've had that information. So, you know, that's also something to keep in mind here. 
Right. And they may have their own separate set of policies and regulations that they're supposed to follow in these situations. And the gentleman who was asked to leave the flight, the uh, the airplane, maybe he could have reluctantly, you know, cooperated and then, you know, done something from there to try to get some justice or, or uh, compensation or something. Sure. Um, perhaps the way that, uh, the, uh, again, I'm not <laughs> definitely not blaming him for what happened to him. I'm just saying no. it may be a part of it. Uh, the way well, that the security people <laughs> handled the situation was probably the worst part of it. Um, I think so that, I, I don't think anything justifies the way the guy was necessarily no. dragged off the, the plane and, you know, right. causing injury to him. Um, you know, and I think everyone has a reason to be outraged by that. However, if you take a step back from that, and I think if you put yourself in that situation, if you're the person who's being asked to, to come off the plane you know, for whatever reason that it is, you may have great justification and reason for why you need to be on that flight, whether it's, you know, you've got a family emergency that you've got to be to, you've got work in the morning that can't be missed. There's a million different reasons why someone might not be able to get off that plane, especially when they've paid for a ticket, have a confirmed seat on the flight. Um, you know, the fine print basically says that you can be denied boarding, even if you have all of those things in place. So you need to know that anytime you're flying, you even though you have a, a confirmed ticket and a guaranteed seat doesn't mean you're necessarily either going to get on the flight or that the flight is going to operate as scheduled that's just kind of the risk of of airline flying and it's always going to be that way to some extent and i think if any of us put ourselves in those situation in that situation you know i think it's reasonable to say gosh if i was really you know intent on getting to my destination i probably would have been pretty forceful about it told them no i'm not getting off the flight the second that law enforcement steps on the plane me personally, I'm getting off the plane. Yeah. I can deal with all that later. I'm not going to put up a Uncle, fight with law enforcement. Yeah. You're winning this situation. You win. Yeah. Like <laughs> something's going on here that's beyond my control. I can certainly justify this to whatever it is on the other end, whether it's a family situation, whether it's a work situation. Hey, law enforcement got on the plane and I had to get off the flight. There was nothing I could do about it. And then you deal with it from that end of it. You know, you you go to you appeal to the company, you appeal to whoever. There's certain, you know, regulatory channels that you can go through at that point to get the compensation that you need you don't fight that i'm sorry you just you don't so right i think and i'm not blaming the the guy you know i'm I'm not condoning what happened to him by any means i don't think that was right but i think any of us in that same situation would have said okay <laughs> that's it i'm off the plane we'll figure it out from there so all right well let me let me chime in because i actually yeah, used to be yeah. a gate agent and I used to be a red coat and I used to be uh, a supervisor and I used to deal with all this on a regular basis. You're right, Steph. You, you are buying an, a, a seat on an airplane, not a specific seat. You're not buying a specific seat assignment either. Um, it is in the contract of carriage that you're guaranteed a seat, but you're not necessarily guaranteed to be in a seat on that flight, on that date. Um, and that is... Um, it's really a bone of contention. I think that's really going to come to light in the forefront now. You know, airlines historically have, have always oversold flights because you always have cancellations. Um, you know, people think of it as if they're buying a ticket to the sport, a sporting event. I mean, when you buy that ticket, you have row F, seat 101, and that's your seat, unless you go on to Subhub and sell it. Um, and if you don't show up, you lose the money. 
maybe the airlines need to go that you know might be forced to do that and you know it's going to be i would imagine a a fair increase um but people want of course what's the first thing that comes out of people's mind when they start talking about airline tickets cheap well a a lot of airlines do that already uh, because you know you're given a specific date to travel and if you uh, don't pitch up on that date, you lose your ticket. So that is right. applied. But having said that, if you pay more, then you get a flexible date and you can book on a flight yes. and you don't have to pitch up for it. You can you can just pitch up the next day or the next day after. And that therein lies the problem. If, you, if the airlines want to accept a greater fee for their tickets and give the passengers flexibility to book on a flight and then just not pitch up for it, they're going to tend to oversell. But having said that, I don't think that was necessarily the case in this particular aircraft. Nope. I think the aircraft was just filled to capacity. And when they decided they wanted to put four additional crew members on, then they had to ease some passengers off. Well, here, I mean, here's here's an example, okay? Um, I agree that that the the, um, agents could handle that a whole lot better, and that is advanced, making sure they know their counts. But... uh, I had it just actually last week, just before the major weather event, um, where I showed up and we, and we were running late. And we they were about to close the door on the aircraft. Showed up and they did not have us booked on that aircraft as they had heading crew members to Charlotte. And the gate agent said, "You're supposed to be on this flight." And I said, "Well, yeah, because we're operating the flight back." <laughs> and she looked at me and said, um, "I don't have you in the system. You know, I I don't have you." So here we are. The aircraft is completely boarded. We're running late, and we show up the gate. And now, if that aircraft was completely full, now they really have a quandary, because they're going to send the aircraft to Charlotte, and they're going to get to Charlotte, and there's going to be nobody to fly it back. So, you know, I can't defend or say what happened with with the gate agent. Whether and you you're right on the, the mark, Steph. Uh, Chicago, I imagine, is probably uh, Republic employees or uh, United. Gate agents, one of the two, mm-hmm. not most likely contractors. Yeah, I'm sure. But even even so, uh, you know, the aircraft was boarded. They were trying to get people to to cooperate and come off the aircraft. Once you have the people on the aircraft, it's very difficult to and uh, to get them off the aircraft. Um, and you know, it's it just I think it's a bigger problem in society today. Anyways, I mean, this whole whole thing with uh, with with you know, when a police officer shows up or somebody shows up. Pay him respect, be respectful, and do as they ask. And then, you know, United, unfortunately, is getting all the bad press on this. Um, I, I don't like the way they've handled it afterwards. But in, in the forefront of it, there really shouldn't have been an incident. You show up, um, and uh, if you're not – if you board the aircraft, they have they have a right to take you off the aircraft. They really do. Uh, and it, it's making it sound worse because of – the crew members it's like they're well they're employees you know we're going to put them on the aircraft you know that that that's where the real bad press is coming because they're pulling pay, paying passenger off the aircraft for an employee and i think that's right. what it really blew up right so yeah and i mean I, and i'm not saying I'm, and i'm not saying this guy gentleman did anything wrong um you know he was just sitting there and his paying passenger but you know sometimes that's up, life you know like things you know, things happen <laughs> 
Out yeah. of interest, you know, uh, I've got some stats for the UK. Uh, yeah. Around 50,000 passengers a year are bumped off British flights alone, okay, because of uh, overbooking. Um, but that only actually represents uh, 0.02 of the travelling uh, passengers. So it's a, a minute percentage, really, of the travelling uh, public. Um, and uh, in the UK, you if you are bumped, you are entitled to a compulsory uh, compensation fee, which will, I think, be given to you eventually in cash, of €600, Euros, which is £512, which is about $650. So um, $800 in a hotel room is moderately generous, although I've read lots of stories, uh, including one today, of uh, a family who, uh, over the course of two days and volunteering to get off airplanes, made $11,000 um, <laughs> because they accepted <laughs> their family uh, a large amount of compensation plus hotels. Yes, uh, that's part of the $125 million that ACME uh, yes. has lost well and that was that was over that was over multiple there were multiple flight segments there multiple times that they got bumped and multiple passengers it wasn't just one person making eleven thousand dollars so it was like three or four they actually did pretty well yeah no i'm not saying that they didn't do well they did they did very well from from acme there but you know the way the story makes it sound sometimes it sounds like one person made eleven thousand dollars well no it was the whole family and it was multiple flight segments and they were being compensated for being delayed multiple days in a row and then not taking the flight altogether. So um, I was going to say something else about that, but you know, I I think there's, like I said, I think the worst part of this and the part that's indefensible is the way that the gentleman was ultimately treated and dragged off the airplane. But I think not that you can assign blame all around, but I think there were missteps on every person involved in this that led to this ultimate outcome. And I think it could have been handled a lot better at each step along the way, including after the fact, you know, the way that the company responded to what happened. Um, it's yeah. just kind of an unfortunate situation. Yeah, a very was, unfortunate another, situation. Another yeah, fumble. That was, that was a big yeah. fumble. And, 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 and quite honestly, Steph, I've, I've actually dealt with taking people off the aircraft before and generally speaking and, and i'm not talking just once twice sorry. i'm talking over uh, you know a, a career's worth of, worth of working the gates and you know there have been there have been times when you, you get people on the aircraft and you realize you're full and there's yeah. you know the aircraft you know nowadays you have the electronics back in the day out you know it's all manual but still you know you're in an oversold situation or you know end up with extra people on the airplane you have to get them off somehow and i would say 95 percent of the time they get off on their own and then the, the, about three or four percent of the time you know sometimes it takes the action of a supervisor coming down and then only maybe i've ever had to have the uh, law enforcement to forcibly come on and, and not even forcibly you know once once law enforcement shows up they've always have never had an yeah. situation that's we're not just talking one or two with my experience it's you know talking five years of me working the gates i mean that's that's uh that's significant i think this so. is a very incredible and unusual situation like you said this is the one in a million you know instances where this actually reaches this point where it comes to that amount of force to get someone off the plane. None of us were there. There's a lot of video and eyewitness uh, 
account, which makes it seem a whole lot worse. And certainly pictures are worth a thousand words and video is probably worth, you know, so much more than that. But it's still hard to tell from the video that I've seen posted to social media what was happening into the moments leading up to that event. You know, certainly there was stuff going on before that that caused people to go, ooh, let me get my phone. And they're like fumbling around for it. And they're like, I got to take it off of airplane mode and, you know, get my video out and start recording. And then you see the moment where everything happens. So, you know, I think there's still a lot of, we weren't there. We don't know what happened um, leading up to that point. I think most people, like you said, Dana, who are rational and in this situation, once law enforcement is involved, they're going to comply and cooperate with law enforcement and figure out things on the other side of things where it doesn't get to the point of being violent. Um, and it's just a shame that it, it got to this point in the first place. So. Yeah, but the reason we're all talking about it really is not because this uh, doesn't happen every day. It does happen every day in every right. country with most airlines. Right. The fact is that there's probably only one person in the world who doesn't know this story now because of uh, the internet. Right. Uh, and he's living on an, uh, a farm in Australia. And uh, <laughs> I've just sent him a, a, an airmail uh, letter so that in a couple of weeks when it gets there, he'll have found out about it too. <laughs> but that, that's the point. There's, <laughs> Everybody in the entire world has latched onto this story, and that's what's done the damage to United. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. And, you know, it's it's hopefully a good public relations lesson that, you know, if your brand is at stake and you don't want things to get to this point, you need to figure out things on the customer service side of the equation to prevent this from happening in the first place. And there's a whole lot of speculation out there about what United could have done differently in this situation to prevent this from happening, whether it was more compensation or, you know, a myriad of other suggestions. Um, and I think most airlines are going to take a good look at this situation and figure out what they're going to do if they're presented with a similar problem in the future. Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking. Always. Just like, Always. Just like if we make, made an error in the cockpit, they would be exactly. doing the same thing. Hey, yep. There's a silver lining to all of this, actually. Now you've there heard is. of the, uh, the the terrible events of the uh, the chemical weapons use in Syria, and yes, uh, the leader of that country, President uh, Bashar al-Assad, in Syria. Yes. Um, the Pentagon announced Tuesday that it awarded a sole source contract to United Airlines for work related to the forcible removal of President Assad. The contract worth 2.1 billion tasks the airline company with locating Assad, grabbing him from his seat in the presidential palace, and dragging him out of Damascus by his arms. The contract also notes that Assad should be asked several times politely to give up his seat of power, though if he refuses, United workers should bloody his nose up a bit, according to the posting at FedBizOps. <laughs> Oh, I'll put a link to this oh, funny article there. I thought, oh, that's very clever. Actually, there are a lot of clever uh, things that have come from this. Many, many. And, oh. you know, it's it's good to keep a sense of humor yes. about it, you know, not forgetting about injured passengers and whatnot. But I think later on we're actually going to hear from a United captain. Uh, we have some in I, You know what? Perhaps, perhaps we should, um, now that you mention it, I think this would be a good time to hear from him. We This is an exclusive at the uh, Airline Pilot Guy Show. This is your captain speaking. Welcome aboard United Airlines Flight 1170. Non-stop beating, I mean, uh, non-stop service to St. Louis. We'll be pushing back shortly. Also, 
we will be pushing you shortly. We have a few first class seats available. Uh, the flight attendants are lined up in the aisle. They have some socks filled with nickels. If you can make it past them, first class seat is all yours. Please pay attention to the safety briefing so you know how to care for your wounds. Apply pressure to the wound for yourself first before helping anyone else. Flight attendants, please prepare the cabin for round one. Thank you for flying United. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's amazing we got that uh, that audio. Very exclusive. Very good. <laughs> That's very exclusive. No question. All right. Ah. Uh. We have fun here, oh, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've just noticed we've got Carlos Stebbings in the uh, chat room, and there's one thing I'd like to say to him, and that's pork pie. <laughs> Does that have something to do with rugby or something? What is that? It might have to do with potatoes. What yeah, are we talking behind. about here? I'm. This is completely going over my head. Oh, I'm sure it's you'll right. get your chance, Jeff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I guess we should move on then. Um, let's see. Well, you know, we already talked about the, uh, the meltdown of, uh, Acme Airlines, so we probably don't need to talk mm-hmm. about that anymore. Um, yeah, let's see. Oh, Harrison Ford. Remember we talked about this incident uh, that occurred, uh, on, I don't know, uh, earlier. A couple months ago. A couple months. Was it really earlier that long year. ago? Yeah. February uh, yeah, 13th. Yeah. Uh-huh. Two months okay. ago or so. Wow. Can't believe it's already been that long. <laughs> Well, apparently, uh, Harrison Ford's attorney says the actor will not face any penalties over mistakenly landing on a taxiway at the Southern California airport earlier this year. Uh, The attorney uh, wrote in a statement uh, that the Federal Aviation Administration will not fine Ford and the actor will retain his pilot's license without restriction. So that's good. That's good news for uh, Harrison Ford. I'm wondering, though, uh, if every pilot citizen would have been afforded the same the same well uh, treatment. i, I kind of i don't think so. so you don't think so you think if it was you so. or i that were flying around in our private aircraft and we said whoops that was the taxiway and the runway was over there we were supposed to be on the runway we're on the taxiway we flew overhead of a commercial airliner on our way onto the taxiway dfa might have had I, I i would i would i mean are you clear to land on the taxiway no. If you're now, let me ask you this: If you're at a non-controlled airport, mm-hmm. then you'll get away with it. But if you're at an, a, a controlled towered airport and they claim you to land on runway nine left, you land on nine left. If you don't land on nine left, now now you're creating you're, you're creating. I mean, a, technically, a it's a violation, right? It's I mean, a violation. You've, you've gone against least, FAA instructions. You have. You have. At the very least, it's a violation. They didn't do anything. Right. Nothing. However, you can have a violation, and in some cases, there may not be any significant reprimand to come from those violations, you know, other than just a note in your, and it, you know, it just says there's not any penalties. It doesn't make mention of, you know, now, come on, put people. on file. This is Han Solo. Do I need to say anything else? Listen, if Han Solo wants to land on a taxi, let Give the him guy a break. land on a taxi. Right. He's a good true. guy. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's he's done a lot of good for general aviation over the yeah. years. Um, yeah. What have you done? I agree with you, Dana. It <laughs> probably does make a difference. You know, yeah. they don't know you or I from anyone. Um, if we did the same thing, it might have come down with some harsher penalties. I don't know. Maybe not. You know, nothing bad ultimately came from this. It was a mistake. Um, you'd like to think that in these cases where there's a mistake, you cooperate 
you learn from the mistake. Hopefully that's just a learning point and nothing else. Um, I think it's so, hard to say. So let, let, let me ask you this. If, you, if you're supposed to put a needle in the S1 joint and put it in T4, is that a mistake? <laughs> it depends. But look and what she's been doing for physiatry. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I'm just, I no? mean, just, I'm just saying, I mean, you know, that's, uh, we, we don't ultimately know. I mean, maybe they just gave yeah. him a slap on the hand, you know, gave him, you know, you know, warming it, it depends. Sort. you know, they got, they got the injection in the wrong place, but were they harmed by it ultimately? If the answer is no, you can come back and put it in S1 and call it a day. Yeah. True. So, yeah. Well, I think it just depends on the situation, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that nothing really came of this because it really would have it you take someone like this who's high profile who's a celebrity they've made a mistake which to be honest could happen to any of us um in similar situations you know we'd hope no. that it wouldn't i know it never happened to dana dana's pilot <laughs> extraordinary i've never the made a mistake the rest of us i've never made mistakes things don't always go as planned or as you intend and sometimes it's uh you know you, you have a little mea culpa moment and um you admit your error and fortunately nothing bad happened from it and you learn from it um i, I do have to say one thing steph for those folks that can't see the video I'm very, being very facetious. I'm making all types of funny faces, but I've never <laughs> made a mistake. I'm rolling my eyes. There are those who have and those who will. I think we, and even I if we're just listening mistakes. to the audio, we kind of figure. We, we got it. We got okay, it. But the, I'm just saying, you know, especially in this case where it's someone who's high profile, again, who does a lot of work on behalf of the AOPA and general aviation, um, to come down hard on this would be not great for the general aviation Maybe community it would send probably the wrong message so i think the faa has probably done the right thing in this case but if he does it again message. his but, you know, yeah, the wrong message. so it's okay to land on so it's okay no, to land on a taxiway no, 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 no. <laughs> it's it's perfectly fine to land on a well no it, of course it's not hey dana it's you not, know we've never done okay it at to Acme, land right? on the taxiway but yeah well yeah i don't know i was gonna say something is it, that, puts, is it puts people at ease who are not in the same class status as Harrison Ford potentially so you know you see if something if he can make a mistake so driving, like that, driving down a one way driving no, down a one way street no. the wrong way it's fine <laughs> the, the whole goal here is to learn from, from the makes <laughs> you need to no, learn from this. the whole goal here go. is to have somebody with celebrity oh, in yeah, the airline pilot guy you know show. what I'm trying to say <laughs> I know exactly what you're trying to say the problem is I'm not, saying, I'm not saying you let the celebrities get off but I'm just saying for someone in a high profile situation but he did you come down on I understand that he did and they made a big deal out of it initially and everyone knows about it but you know ultimately nothing bad came of it he admitted his mistake. He learned from it. The rest of us learned from it. There's a lot of talking points that can be useful and constructive. And it doesn't make sense to come down with a harsh penalty or, you know, a fine or other suspension of license or something like that for something that ultimately, it, you know, we can all learn from. And. So, yes, uh, I've seen that before too, Dana. I'll say, <laughs> finally, the last word here. It's Han Solo. Come on, buddy. We're not out of this yet. <laughs> Russian investigators are advising Boeing to consider amending autopilot logic 
to avoid the possibility of an aircraft's automatically following a descent path incompatible with runway position. The recommendation has emerged from the inquiry into the landing accident involving MyCargo Airlines Boeing 747-400F at Bishkek on 16 January 2017. It resulted in 39 fatalities, most of them people on the ground, as the 747 automatically descended on a glide path which overshot the runway, taking the aircraft past the airport and into a residential district. It looks like, uh, based on this article here, that the autopilot ended up intercepting a false glide slope, which is Mm -hmm. one of the anomalies uh, sometimes you can encounter with um, an ILS system, an uh, instrument landing system approach. And uh, they, the crew let the airplane continue on this false glide slope, uh, even though um, it I think it may have been or should have been clear to them that this vertical path was not going to take them to the approach end of the runway, but past the approach end. And uh, by the time they finally realized that they weren't going to see the runway uh, and be at the proper position for it uh, and initiate, they did initiate a go around, but it was just too low and uh, the impact of the ground. Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before and, you know, like Nick said, they have a certain um, call out at their airline where they check the altitude with the fix to make sure that it makes sense and make sure that you're on the correct glide slope, glide path uh, for the approach that you're shooting, which I think is that makes perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. Um, That way, you know, if you're either on a a false glide slope, that's either too high or too low. Um, But, you know, I think that's that's a reasonable thing to consider changing um you know they're talking about changing the autopilot logic to avoid the possibility of that that sounds a little bit more difficult to do because if it intercepts what it thinks is a glide slope um you know even if it's the false glide slope i don't know how you correct for that i'm sure maybe there's a way to do that either by pre-programming in those altitudes that you're supposed to be crossing at certain distances or certain fixes um and if it doesn't match then you get a warning related to that i guess that might be reasonable to do um, i don't think this i don't think this is much different than this triple seven going in in san francisco mm-hmm. basically you got to be able to well, fly the airplane and be able to understand what the airplane's doing you know it's, it's not the it's automation a little bit different maybe because that was a, a basically a visual approach correct where they were just yeah, it, was a, low. it was visual but, but it's just yeah they, they, mis- they mishandled they the auto thrust yeah. they had the auto thrust in the right. wrong or they disengaged they thought it was engaged um I, I don't see uh anything good about this suggestion in that we we all think we're good pilots and we all think we should notice this because there are plenty cues uh, on the instruments to show that we've picked up a false climb slope uh um in this case it would have been a very high rate of ascent um and uh, the wrong altitudes uh, as you go down the slope. But um, it is possible for the aircraft to detect this as well. Uh, I don't know how expensive it would be for Boeing to um, include a uh, oh a rate of descent uh, logic, say, for example, when you're on ILS. I mean, most ILSs, even if you've got a bit of a tailwind, you're rarely going to be going over 1,000 or perhaps 1,200 feet a minute. These guys are probably going in close to 1,500 feet a minute. And if it just came up with a warning suggesting that you 
double check what's going on when you end up with a high rear head descent once you're established on an ILS. That might have been sufficient to uh, cue these guys. But it's another case of uh, putting a level of automation in to do something that the pilot should have been doing in the first place. So um, I know there are a lot of, a lot of people that uh, think that is the wrong way to uh, approach um, the way uh, the aircraft are automated and the way they fly. But uh, it's the alternative to um, having good pilots is to put more automation in. And, and well, I'll have to say that's, that I completely agree with that. And I also agree with Dana in, in the re, respecting the, um, the, the incident, the well, visual approach that, into San Francisco. In both cases, it was a lack of situational awareness. Well, and that's that was my whole point is yeah. that it's not. I mean, the the situations are not not the same. I mean, one's visual, one's ILS. My point, my point is exactly what Nick so eloquently said is that the pilot has to be involved in flying the airplane. And in the in San Francisco, the, the the pilots didn't realize what what the airplane was doing. And again, right. we're talking about the same thing with the seven four seven. I mean, it it's it's just coming back to we don't need more automation. We need more uh, better training or, or people paying attention to what they're doing. And I, I can imagine that to- in this in this case, I'm sure it was a very long duty day and they were very tired. It was late at night. Weather was well, crap. Those, yeah. You know, and so that those are yeah, all factors. And that increases your your workload and all that. But yeah, absolutely, Dana. I agree with you 100 percent on what you're saying there. And I'm sorry if I misunderstood you earlier what you were trying okay. to get to. But um, no, you're absolutely right. You know, it doesn't. You can't put it on. It's still your job, even if it's the end of a long day, you're tired. Well, it's legal. It must be you know? safe. Yeah. Legal. <laughs> yeah. Let's be safe. And it must be, <laughs> it must be safe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have the same problem in medicine sometimes. Yeah. You've worked 30 hours. Must be safe. Right. Um, yeah, no, probably, probably not. But um, it, it does come down to training. I think it comes down to being aware of what's going on. You know, I'm relatively new to flying an aircraft that does a whole lot of stuff for me and you have to monitor the the systems that it's you know you've programmed it to to do for you with the autopilot and it is different um and you have to know what it's doing and i spent a lot of time flying with someone to teach me how to do those things before i felt comfortable doing it on my own and it's still a learning process and i'm not going to do it in situations where i'm not comfortable doing it so um yeah, I think you absolutely you're absolutely right. It's situa- situational awareness, and it's knowing what the airplane's doing, and knowing how to mix the two together, and how to monitor all of that, and perform the job safely. I would propose that the world that we're living in now, where automation is becoming more and more um, available to us, and persistent, and uh, that's not the word I'm looking for, but anyway, it's it's in our world much more than it used to be. I would argue that uh, that you know, doing things manually um, like it used to be. I'm not saying we should go back to that, but I'm just saying that when we were doing things uh, in in a less automated mode, we were more in in it. We were paying attention to it because we had to. And the automation now, it, it's easy to rely upon it to a certain point that, it, you know, we don't realize that it's doing something that it's not supposed to be doing. Uh, pervasive. Thank you. <laughs> Somebody in the chat room. <laughs> Sandy, thank you. Uh, it's it's uh, automation is so pervasive now. And that the fact that because, you know, it's, it's kind of a two edged sword, it's getting so good and so reliable mm-hmm. that when it 
when it's not doing really what it's supposed to do and you're not really understanding what it's doing, that's when we, we okay. fail. And yeah. again, that's the, that's the critical thing that we have to do to make everything safer is just to do something to try to uh, improve the interface between the human, the pilot, and the automation, the machine. And I'll yeah, just say I, this too. Oh, sorry, you carry on, uh, Steph. Um, yeah, no, I was just going to say, because I'm the one who's relatively new to all of that here, I find myself when I am actually using that automation and I engage the autopilot and I'm using that technology, my cross checks and scans are so much more thorough and I'm really almost not paranoid, but just I really want to make sure that I've done the right thing with it. And then I'm making sure that it's doing what I've asked it to do, that I'm kind of on heightened alert to make sure that everything's set up as I wanted it to be set up. So it's, it's part of learning how to fly the plane with that automation, which is interesting. Um, it's very different than what I'm used to where it's all manual flying and you know, you're controlling all of that 100%, even though you're still controlling it through those flight systems. Um, I find that I'm a lot more concerned about making sure that it's doing what I've asked it to do. And then I'm making sure that it's leveled out on the altitude that I want it to level out at, that we're following the path that I wanted to fo follow that, you know, we're making the turns on course as we're instructed to, um, even though I would be doing all those same things, if I were just flying the plane hundred percent, manually i'm much more concerned about it but i can see how if you become comfortable with that over time you become much more reliant on oh no it always works the way it's supposed to work or it usually works the way it's supposed to work so i'm just gonna plug everything in and let it do what it wants to do complacency so, complacency, complacency and dependency exactly but the the last thought i'm going to bring to this is that um uh, the world that Dana is harking back to is a world we've actually been in in the past where um, guys, generally speaking, hand flew the aircraft a great deal of the time. Uh, and yet every layer of automation that has generally come in has because one of them made a major mistake and caused a major accident. So um, it might have been one reason or another, but slowly the engineers have gone, well, okay, if a pilot's, uh, and sometimes very good pilots, have been capable of making this mistake, let's put a warning system in or something that stops them, other people, from repeating that mistake. So uh, that this is just a natural progression. So whether it's uh, GPWS, EGPWS, TCAS, or all the other systems that are in the aircraft to prevent us from uh, erring uh, as our predecessors have that is merely just another layer that's going on top now if we were all perfect pilots those systems would never have been needed because we would never have made mistakes fact is that we do and even the best of us make mistakes yep. and that leads the need for systems or certainly the aircraft manufacturers and the airlines yeah, yeah, say, well, yeah. we need a greater level of um, safety and we need something to check on these guys to make sure they don't make mistakes. And that's what this is. And speaking of mistakes, I just 
accidentally <laughs> pushed the button for the, <laughs> for, sure, for, sure, for the okay. feedback. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, to, add another, to add another quick point to that, too, you know, I was listening to, uh, we talked about Dispatcher Mike's um, podcast about Sun and Fun earlier, and he was talking about his flight back from Florida to Georgia. Um, and it was kind of a long, straight line flight at a relatively consistent altitude. And he was talking about how because his plane doesn't have an autopilot system, it was beginning to get a little boring, rote, mundane, taxing, you know, um, maybe a little bit um, not overwhelming, but just mentally taxing, physically taxing, flying the airplane at a level consistent altitude on the same heading for the entire time and manually doing all of that over multiple hours of flying time that's where automation really can be helpful. You know, you, you don't want to have to do that. That's, that really is terrible. <laughs> it's not fun. It takes kind of some of the joy out of flying. Um, and, you know, I've, I will say it's really nice to have access to an airplane that will do that for you. So it's not that we shouldn't be using those autopilot systems and certainly not in your world where you're flying commercial aircraft, where you're flying, you know, doing basically the same thing over multiple hours. It's, not realistic it's not logical to have to hand fly the aircraft back across the atlantic you know from the u.s to to the uk or something like that um so this is stuff that we need to know how to use how to manage and it's no different than hand flying the airplane that you have to know how to um operate all of those systems and know what the airplane is doing and what the inputs are that you're giving it and what it's telling you to do so exactly my point Yep, that's a, Stephanie and, and, and Nick, you've hit my point exactly, is that, Nick, you're talking about the old way of flying and the new way of flying with the automation versus the old way of, you know, what my point is, is that as a pilot, if you utilize the tools that you have in front of you, then there is no safer way of going to travel ever. Mm -hmm. Right now, we are in the safest time. So if you, if you're as a pilot, use your tools, then you have a safe flight. Exactly my point. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and understand that th those are tools. They're right. Not, exactly. You know, you you. That's something. You're that we still have. the one flying the airplane. Right. Exactly. And if you haven't yet watched uh, uh, Vandenberg or uh, whatever his name was, uh, the uh, American the Airlines. Uh, yeah, the uh, Children of the Magenta video. I mean, that, I can't say it any better than than he did with that. We are in charge and responsible for the path of the airplane and what it's doing use automation because it's wonderful but know what it's doing and when it's not doing what you think it's supposed to be doing then do something about it don't just be right. along for the ride and it's exactly. so nice i really do enjoy it, it. i mean i, I can't that. imagine the, the you know the flying the flying that nick does the flying that dana does the flying that i do you know for an hour, two hours, 10 hours, you know, at, at altitude and, you know, hand flying that. Of course, that's ridiculous. You know, nobody wants to do that. That's what automation is built for. And, uh, and uh, more than that, of course, but um, that's, uh, you know, one of its best uses. Okay, great. Well, I think now it is time for the best part of the show, which, of course, bourbon. is the bourbon. <laughs> no, your feedback. Yeah. 
Captain. Incoming message. And we'd like to say happy National Grilled Cheese Day. Really? Lane Street in the chat mm. room, is it really National Grilled Cheese Well, I think yesterday day? was, you know, Siblings Day or Siblings something. Day, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like every day is something. Like a bunch of different things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Where are we going to start with our feedback? Let's go with uh, <laughs> this is one that I think that uh, Captain Nick will be very interested in uh, discussing. There, uh, Joe sent us, Joe Skeena, uh, A320 captain, uh, sent in a video, and we'll put a link to it in the, in the show notes, uh, where this, this gentleman is, uh, this pilot is flying an airplane. Uh, there's a camera mounted uh, down probably on the lower part of the instrument panel and uh, and basically shooting upwards toward uh, the pilot and the uh, control yoke you can see in clear view. It's a Boeing airplane and this this guy is flying the airplane and pushing and manipulating the controls, the control yoke in a very, very vigorous uh, manner um, and uh, Joe says, you know, it kind of looks like uh, this is a little excessive. Is, is this the way you have to fly a Boeing? <laughs> and uh, I think if you look at the video, you'll see that either the conditions were extreme or, uh, Dana, you'll probably agree with me, there are certain pilots that sometimes over-control. They over-manipulate the control yoke. And they basically cause their own problems, problems. with, yeah. yeah. So that that's what it seems to me. I'm looking at this thing; it doesn't seem like it's one of those situations where they're in, you know, huge wind shears and everything else. Um, and uh, I don't know. Did you did you watch that, uh, Captain Nick? I'm sure you did. Uh, oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> what and, do you think? Uh, uh, well, I'm sorry, I can't really comment. I've given up Boeing bashing for Lent. No. Come yeah. on, you can say <laughs> something. <laughs> now, all I say is that I suspect uh, all the um, the flight controls were thrashing about uh, at a great rate. The airplane, I suspect, was hardly moving. <laughs> I think so you're right. um, uh, doing that, uh, whether it's uh, fly-by-wire, and, and I know plenty of Airbus pilots that are capable of doing exactly the same thing. In fact, to a certain extent, it's a lot easier because to move the uh, control stick at an equivalent rate requires very little effort. You know, you just need to tweak the, the stick around and it's very easy to start uh, moving it backwards and forwards up and down at, uh, at a high rate. Uh, he's at least he's having to put a lot of effort into it. I mean, he looks like he's having to work out in the gym. But um, uh, maybe yeah. that's what he was going for. He, he missed the gym this morning. He you know, I've seen, to, uh, I've seen videos you know. of um, like the uh, manipulation of the uh, side stick controller on the Airbus. And as, as Nick says, you know, I've seen some pretty excessive looking motions going on there. And it looks like the airplane is just basically the computer system is going, um, no, I'm not going to do that. There's no reason for them, for me to do that. Uh, if you're not on a fly-by-wire computer-controlled system, uh, it's it, you know the controls are going to do that. But I think you're just putting yourself in a PIO. Do you remember that story? Uh, that I've told uh, probably at least once or twice on on previous episodes uh, in the days when I was flying the 727 and I was flying with the new guy and we were going into Tucson and you know the winds were you know they were not calm they were 
significant winds, but uh, this guy was flying, and we were like, the airplane was bouncing around, and it was like almost violent, and we had to go around, and we went back around, and he tried it again, and we had to go around again, and I'm looking over at the uh, flight engineer's panel, you know, the, the fuel panel, and I'm going, darn it, if we don't get this airplane on the ground on this attempt, we're going to have to divert, and this is serious situation and so i looked over at him and i said hey you know you've been really battling this wind and 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 you're uh, i think that uh, maybe you should take a break i'll go ahead and fly it (laughs) when i flew it it was like not i mean it wasn't bad at all uh what i think now after i took control of the airplane i realized that he was just over controlling he was he was causing the issues with the uh the airplane bouncing around and bumming around and and not being in a stabilized approach uh, because I, I, you know, he was doing what this guy was doing on this video. I think, um, I don't know. You know I wasn't there. Like it, yeah. Yes, sir. I was going to say, it looks like normal control inputs for an 88. <laughs> yeah. Really? <laughs> no, but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every, oh, every single ever, approach we right? do is just like this guy. What's funny, you know, what's really frustrating about this is Dana, I've flown with you. I know you don't do this, but there are guys that will, that will fly or gals. I don't want to be, you know, equal opportunity, um, Person, nah, oh uh, yeah, that's true. The female yeah. wouldn't do that; they would be nice and smooth. But we have I've, finesse, right? I've seen guys, you know, like do this kind of thing, and especially like in the last fifty feet, really just jerking the controls around and everything else, and trying to get exactly, you know, right till you touch down. And I'm thinking, what? That was so unnecessary. Why did you do that? And then people getting off the air. This is the frustrating part. People getting off the airplane go, wow, nice job on that uh, that landing. Wow, that was a great landing. You know, and I'm thinking. You really worked for it, you know? Like, yeah, exactly. I'm going, yeah. no, that was horrible. That was awful. <laughs> he made all if those. If you only all, knew. Yeah. The, all the motion that you felt there, that was completely unnecessary. You didn't need <laughs> to do that. Pilot, pilot induced. Pilot induced, yeah. Exactly. Anyway, um, thanks, Joe, for, uh, for that. Um, we have some feedback from Gustav. Now, before I, before I do this, I noticed uh, that this was in the folder for the old pilot's plane tails. Did you put that there, Nick, or w- did I accidentally throw it in your in your uh, plane tails folder? I don't know how it got there. I think my... that was my fault then, operator error. No problem. Uh, Gustav sent some pilot feedback. Pilot induced. Yeah, it was my it was pilot error. <laughs> it was my fault. We should because, develop some software to stop you doing that. I wish there was exactly. software to keep me from making those kind of mistakes. Because you know, I thought I thought about that. And I thought, you know, what happened to that feedback? I don't think we talked about it in the show, and it was really good feedback. So let's hear from Gustav. Well, hello there, APG, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Doctor Steph, and Dana. This is Gustav from Sweden calling. Long-time listener, first-time caller. You know, I live in a small city on the west coast of Sweden, far, far away from any major airport or anything related to aviation. But every now and then, I look up in the sky and I see a big, big airplane up there, and I imagine that maybe, maybe perhaps it's Miami Rick sitting up there in the 747. And as I gaze up at the sky, I think about how grateful and how thankful I am to this show and for all the work that you put in every week to put um, to produce an 
amazing show with so much entertainment, with so much information about airplanes and aviation. And so from the bottom of my heart, a big, big thank you. Now, I've been listening to your show for about a year now, and a lot of my questions about aviation and airplane have been answered uh, throughout these episodes. Um, so for now, I've boiled down my questions to two. So for the first question, I was wondering about type ratings and conversion to new airplane types. So I was thinking, is it possible for you guys to talk us through uh, the process of learning how to fly a new airplane. Maybe starting at day one and until you're finished uh, flying off an airplane. I think that would be really interesting to hear. And then secondly, um, I was trying to grow a mustache a couple of uh, months ago and I didn't succeed at it at all. But I was thinking maybe Captain Jeff could offer some advice for any man aspiring to look as charming and handsome as he does. I think that would be really cool to hear. Anyway, thank you so much and um, take care. Thank you, Gustav. Now you know why I wanted to play his feedback. I, I think his head got, I think just head got really big. <laughs> My mustache got well, really big. How much do you pay him for that feedback? <laughs> We're not going to talk about that. There's no payola here. That's where all the coffee fun's going. <laughs> my advice, um, well, when I was younger, if you looked at my mustache, you wouldn't have been so impressed with it. Let me just put it that way. So the older you, the older you get, the, the more the hair just starts growing everywhere. <laughs> Places you don't want it to grow. <laughs> yeah, that, all that comes out of his nose. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to tell from the pictures, but it's true. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> Shut up. Okay. Well, on so, this time of year, it turns green, right, Jeff? Pardon me? Your nose turns green. The nose hairs from all the pollen. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, that's very true. The <laughs> the first part I of this. I don't know if you heard that. I'm oh, so poor sorry. Baby. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand what he's saying. But anyway, oh. <laughs> uh, the first part of his uh, feedback he talked about was he talking about typewritings? How we how we get typewritings? Yeah, and he wanted to know from start to finish, from day one to the end. That's oh my gosh. Be- a whole podcast on his own. <laughs> yeah, that would take us a long time to, to go well, through. you go for a discovery flight, and then you learn how to fly, and then, yeah. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Great. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Steph. That was a perfect, uh, perfect. reference yeah. to uh, Seinfeld, which we like to do on this show. I'm just looking for my bell. Where's the bell? Darn it. Here we go. Yay. Or I could just use my physical bell that I have in front of me. Oh, I like that one. Well, Um, I did not one not long ago when I converted the 330. I suppose I could put that into a nutshell. Okay. Um, Please do. Kicked off in the classroom. We had about uh, four days of working through all the tech system. And don't forget, this was just differences. There was basically the same airplane we're just working through. Uh, the 340, 330 differences. Uh, then we sat in front of uh, computers on our own and considered lots of other uh, aircraft systems uh, that we needed to know about. Then we sat the compulsory uh, civil aviation uh, type 
uh, exam, which is a technical exam, about 100 questions, and that was quite a high pass mark. But uh, once you got through that, you'd officially finished the tech side of it. Then it was a matter of getting in the simulator, and I think we had three or four simulator sessions just to go through uh, differences and how the aircraft handled, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, and that was it. And if you're in a uh, zero flight sim, one that's uh, good enough f uh, for you to do all your training in the simulator, you don't actually have to get into the airplane until your first flight with passengers. Now, obviously, for the first time, if it's a completely new type, you just expand that up a bit because uh, instead of just doing differences, you're doing the entire aircraft systems. Uh, and um, but still, the same applies uh, in the simulator. If you're in a zero flight sim, you're obviously going to get more simulators and practice more various bits and bobs if you're learning the aircraft from scratch. But uh, you know, you're going to do uh, probably. 10, 15 sims if you're uh, on a brand new type and then you're going to uh, sit your uh, uh, what is effectively our annual sim check, you're going to do it for the first time, it'll be uh, a um, LPC, OPC check uh, and then off you go with passengers, it's really no big deal, you might have a training captain beside you for the first few flights but that's about it So, Would you say well, that like anybody that's coming to an airplane for the first time, a different type they're going to get basically the same kind of training. Maybe uh, the the person that's getting the type rating is going to get to get a little bit more, but their their evaluation of their knowledge of the systems is going to be much more in depth. Uh, yes, the first time round, you do things uh, in great depth, and certainly the examination that the CA required for you to get your type rating uh, is much more than you normally get in, uh, say, your annual technical refresher. Um, it, yes, it covers every system in depth. Uh, you only still get a sample of questions, but uh, they're quite um, specific, and it's a closed book exam, so you don't get the opportunity to sit and open the manuals and check what the answer is. You've got to do it from memory. So uh, that's that's the difference. Yeah, and it's been a while since I've gotten a type rating um, at ACME, but um, I'm not sure if they're still doing it this way or not, but we get an oral examination. It's not a computer kind of test money uh, they don't do that anymore they do the computer they do not do the oral anymore wow okay really you see how long it's been since i've gotten a typewriting it was yeah. like 15 I mean, did they have computers and when you did yours jeff <laughs> yes they did <laughs> <laughs> yeah they had you know well, gonna... uh they had uh single tandy. color screen monotone screens <laughs> yeah. and radio uh, shack tandy <laughs> 500 <laughs> Shut up. You know, I was I was going to say for me to for me to learn to fly the uh, the the DC nine MD eighty eight product, I had to go to uh, electrical engineering school. I had to go to um um uh to, um study paleontology so I can understand how a dinosaur operates. Neanderthals and mechanical engineering so I can understand how pulleys work. And then finally I was able to go to class uh and learn how to actually become an aviator on a mad dog. Uh you know the, the the old way of doing things is what Jeff went through. Um used to be the used to teach the aircraft in depth. Um used to spend twelve days in the classroom. Uh, using the classroom uh, as long as as well as flight train devices, which is a fixed device, no visuals, uh, and a CAPT computer assisted procedure trainer. 
now now they pretty much have gone to all computer training. And back when Jeff was going through, you would get uh, an oral exam, especially as a captain. Uh, computer exam was pretty much uh, standard for a while uh, for FOs, but uh, captains would get a full oral, usually about two-hour oral exam on all the systems on the aircraft. Now it's just uh, show up to class, have your CD done or your your um, memory stick, which has you know, computer-based training, and right into the they basically do a day and a half of systems, and then uh, and then you're right into flight train devices, and you spend about a week in those. I think it's six six days in those. And those FTD is a uh, fixed training device, which is basically a mock-up of the cockpit with no visual, and it doesn't move. Then you move on to simulator training, um, and then uh, the simulator is broken into three modules, uh, three different modules. uh, And then uh, so we have four days of the first modules working on procedures second day uh, second four is going to be your maneuvers and then the, the third four is going to be your uh, your um you know loe type of flying and then they'll go into your maneuvers validation thing your loe and then you go out to the line just like nick was talking about and you end up um flying with a check airman for usually 40 ish new pilots. So that's basically, that's the gist of going through a full course uh, as a uh, as a new hire pilot. Um, of course, I missed the, the first part was indoctrinating for a, a company procedures, and that's usually two weeks. So that's a sum, summary of what goes on at uh, ACME and most, uh, most airlines in the States as far as uh, going from uh, zero to hero. You know, but, th- go ahead. Sorry, Jack. Go ahead. Uh, bear in mind, uh, Gustav, that most major airlines overtrain. Uh, we do more than the absolute minimum requirement. So if you were to go out and buy a commercial uh, package to, to give you a tight rating, it would be very short and sweet. And I think you'll find that Jess Airline and my airline uh, and United come to that will all have uh, an extended training session to make sure their guys are top-notch because they just don't want to take the risk of having incidents because they haven't covered uh, uh, dotted every i and crossed every t those oral examinations were uh, the tough thing about that is that you know if you're taking a computer-based test or a written exam you can probably get away with you know maybe not being completely prepared but uh, when you're in an oral examination and they start asking you questions about certain systems, they'll know right away if you're BSing them and you're, you know, you're kind of weak in that particular area. And then they'll just start delving even more into that area to see how badly you really don't know the systems. Uh, it's, it, it's a tough thing, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, maybe we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, my dentist does a good oral examination. <laughs> I'm sure he does. This is your captain speaking. I'd like to welcome everybody aboard Delta Flight 101. Non-stop service to Dallas, Texas. We here at Delta welcome everyone, including those who wear leggings. So if you have leggings on, enjoy your complimentary upgrade to first class. And to show solidarity with those who wear leggings, all of our pilots this week will be wearing leggings instead of their standard uniform pants. That's right, we're serving walnuts. So sit back and relax. We'll be pushing back from the gate here in about 10 minutes. And thank you for flying Delta. We love leggings, and it shows. 
<laughs> serving I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Deb, for that comment too. <laughs> okay, uh, moving on. <laughs> thank you, Miami Hick, for that. <laughs> oh, God, we're, and can I just say, Miami Hick, we're so glad to have you back. I yes. know you know life gets in the way sometimes, but we appreciate what you can send stuff. Uh, in, your so. humor is just so welcome. <laughs> All right. Here we have some audio feedback from Down Under. Hello, APG crew. Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, First Officer Dana, and the lovely Dr. Steph. I have a question in relation to the topic that you guys discussed on the last podcast about personal electronic devices and laptops having to go into the hold of aircraft for security reasons. In the last couple of months, there have been discussions uh, on podcasts and in social media of airlines wishing to move forward in their cabin design to remove excess weight and rely upon personal electronic devices to provide in-flight entertainment. With these new rules coming into play, how do you think that will affect cabin design uh, for the future? Uh, thank you very much. I love the podcast, as you guys know. And keep the blue side up. Take care. Bye for now. Thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, that's a good question because it seems that a lot of companies are kind of going the direction of let's forget about these fancy in-flight entertainment systems that are in the seat back and the you know the, the the seat in front of you and use your own device bring what, what do they call it bring your own be up is that what the is that what the question was i missed some of that because my feed broke up a little bit can you repeat it one more yeah time? he was talking about the fact that you know this new uh, laptop ban for some of the carriers oh, right, right, right. Uh, for the you know that they've established the united states and the uk mm-hmm. um and uh, it seems that some of the airlines are kind of going more toward the byo um Sure. And I've flown with some of those airlines, not just, you know, internationally, but here domestically, there's several airlines that do that, that say, if you've got your own tablet device or laptop device, you can access, and and a lot of it's free. You know, you can watch TV Mm -hmm. basically for free. You don't have to pay the, you know, internet fee or whatever. Acme is that way. You know, you can fire Acme is that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Southwest is that way. Um, There's actually one other I've been on. I don't remember if it was JetBlue or someone else. Very similar, you know. Um, you basically just pull it up on your tablet and there you go. Yeah. So this definitely will impact, but, um, perhaps the idea of just handing out as some of these, um, airlines are starting to do to kind of help alleviate the, the pain of this ban, um, you know, where they give you, uh, just a device that is a generic device that they've vetted and they know that they, didn't put any bombs in it, and uh, they're they're safe. Uh, that people can use these. So um, perhaps that's the way they're going to get around well, this. I don't know. Isn't this some of this a little bit ridiculous in the first place? What did we do before we had our own tablet devices or in-flight entertainment systems? You know, what happened to get old-fashioned? What the heck? Well, I brought a boombox. I brought a, a boombox. <laughs> I'm sure your fellow passengers love you for that. <laughs> Just put in that cassette tape and hit play, put it on your shoulder, walk up and down the aisle. I saw somebody the other day that was using something that had like like characters that were on some kind of a piece of paper. And it was like all put together in, in, in this 
I think it was called a book. A book? Yeah. No, can't I've heard can possibly be. <laughs> there are there any museums and libraries. <laughs> That's true. Right? <laughs> but I read all of my books on my tablet. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> oh, I know. You're out of luck. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Good question. Bring back playing cards. Playing, yeah, playing, playing cards. cards. There you go. Yeah. Oh, those were the days. You used to get a free pack of playing cards, yeah. didn't you? When you got on board. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh I never. Well, you're not old enough to remember experience. that stuff. Yeah, you're so young. I missed out on all of that. <laughs> Dang it. I like playing my cards. Gra- my grandmother had a collection that was filled up a whole entire armor of all the cards she got every time she got on the airplane. Oh, you know what? I do actually have some Safe Jets playing cards. So thank you to Pilot Pip for those. Oh, oh there you go. I'll bring those plates with me. No, we'd have to play chess with our next door neighbors. Or I, I, mm-hmm. trying to imagine. What about just talk to your neighbor? What? No. Yeah, but no they way. might be really boring. Then you'd be stuck, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Um, well, they might just want to look out of the window or whatever. Well, do we have these windows are all in the fine suggestions. <laughs> anyway, if it weren't for Can the. Tell us ob- about your recent uh, deadhead flight. Didn't you have a deadhead flight where um, you had some window shades up? Yeah, I, I I did, and I was luckily sitting at the window, and I looked around, and everybody in first class had their window shades down. It was like a dark cavern, even though it was not night, and I put my window shade up, and it was there's one right in front. Somebody said, you have two windows? And, well, it was kind of like the window between my row and the row ahead of me. And, yeah, uh, it's mostly mine. Yeah, so I I put it up, and uh, at some point, the guy, he reclined his seat, and then he slammed the thing down. I'm thinking, okay, I get it. You didn't like the fact that I opened that window. But, uh, you know, I had mine open, and again, mine was the only one open in the the entire first class or business class section of the airplane. I'm thinking, what is wrong with these people? So. I, I will say this too. Um, recent flight that I took out to Eastern North Carolina on a um, American regional partner. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sitting in the exit row, um, and I would always have my window shade up anyway. On the CRJ two hundred, the window sits at about you know mid chest height, so it's not much use to actually look out the window. If you're looking but, down, um, <laughs> if you would like to look directly at the ground, yeah. it's perfect. So, um, yeah, it's great. Um, However, uh, as part of the uh, safety briefing from the flight attendant, because we were sitting in the exit row, she did specifically say for um, taxi takeoff and landing that our window shades in the exit row had to be up. That was their company procedure. Oh, good. So, yeah, that's that was very good nice. to hear. I think all of the window shades should be up for should takeoff be. and landing, yes. but maybe one day we'll get that to that point. All right. Well, I think it's now time for Plane Tales. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, the second part of the latest Andy Anderson interviews. Andy is in Brighton waiting for a posting, and he joins his first squadron. Now, everyone, of course, wanted to be a fighter pilot. Everyone that was there wanted to be a hero (laughs) and uh, the opportunities for being a fighter pilot were pretty remote at that time. Uh, The Battle of Britain was all over and um, 
it was mostly beginning to uh, concentrate on bomber command. There was a long waiting list for bomber command. In the meantime, the Brits uh, had found that they they could use their newfound radar and uh, create night fighters. So everyone wanted to be a night fighter. So we were told that carrots improved your night vision, so we all ate carrots until they were coming out of our ears. (laughs) Now, uh, I had been there for about, I suppose, a month and uh, was getting a bit fed up with just kicking around Brighton when the chaplain, who was a great friend, actually, he'd he'd come over on the same draft and... uh, you know, he was a particularly nice guy, and uh, he came to see three of us who'd become great friends, and um, he suggested that, that we ought to take an interest in these guys that were coming up from Plymouth and recruiting for their squadron. So we asked them what squadron it was, and he said it was an Australian squadron, entirely Australian squadron, and uh, they flew flying boats. That was new to us. Anyway, um, we decided to put our names forward and uh, these officers from 10th Squadron came to Brighton to interview people for their squadron to replace people that had been lost. In this case, they, they needed three pilots. Three of us were chosen and asked if we'd like to come down to Plymouth and fly flying boats and join 10th Squadron. So uh, we were rather hesitant because, you know, this was new to us. We didn't know much about coastal command or anti-U-boat stuff or anything like that. So we said, uh, you know, what are the conditions like down there? And they said, there's one thing we can assure you. Instead of kicking around Brighton and waiting for a posting into bomber command, you will be in operations in two weeks. Now, that was a tremendous draw because this was now getting on for, you know, into 1942 and we were thinking that um, with the Americans in the war, so we said, right, we'd, we'd like to do it. So the three of us, uh, myself, Tommy Hughes and uh, Peter Braham were the three guys that went down and we remained friends for right through our, our operational tour. When we arrived on the squadron, true to their promise, we were in operations in two weeks. Now, the reason for that was that we learnt as we flew. It was a long, long tour. Uh, We had to mark up 1,000 hours of operational flying before we could finish a tour, or we had to have... 18 months of continual operations before. So it was 18 months or a 1,000 hours. So we started off as third pilot on, on an aircraft that had a crew of 11. The arrangement was for us to gain experience as a third pilot. Then eventually we would move to the right-hand seat and we'd become the second pilot. And then for the last 500 hours of our tour we would be given our own flying boat. 11 crew and 16 guns and uh, 
and after a while we became quite enthralled with our aircraft. It was sort of part sailing and part flying, which if you're interested at all in sailing, it, it was the best of both worlds. I mean, on the water we were all talking of um, the bridges instead of flight decks and uh, and we had a, a toilet on board and that was called the heads. There were things like bollards and drogues and uh, and of course we had to become very proficient with tides and winds, winds and how to moor up and all that sort of thing on the water. And then when we became airborne, of course, it was all the flying part of it. The range of these aircraft were about uh, 12 hours and our major job was convoy escorting and uh, uh, hunting for U-boats. And we covered the Bay of Biscay and out into the western approaches. So in 1942, the uh, U-boats were predominant and uh, Britain was getting into a desperate state. And when we took provisions on board to have something to eat during our 12-hour stint, we had to sign for food. I mean, if we took eggs, they'd count the eggs out one per crew member and we'd have to sign for them. And that was how desperate the uh, situation was becoming food-wise in the United Kingdom. The convoys were the major part of our uh, operations and to try and protect them was in the early days a very difficult experience because we could only circle them during daylight hours and the U-boats weren't interested in doing anything in daylight hours. They always, if they attacked, attempted to do so at night. I'm galloping ahead a bit, but since we're on the subject of convoys, the convoys would leave the Americas and, uh, and Canada in ships up to 50, probably more, spread out over miles of ocean, controlled by... A number of ships that the that the uh, the Royal Navy could spare to try and protect those convoys. So you can imagine in your mind a huge area of water that these Royal Navy ships had to position themselves in an attempt to prevent a a U-boat getting through. Now the U-boat only attacked at night, and. Uh, they would uh, be daring in that they, some of them would actually come up within the convoy. The Royal Navy then said to Merchant Navy captains, if you see a U-boat or you are attacked by a U-boat, the first thing we want you to do is to send up a flare and that will give us a position as to where you are and where the U-boat may be and we can perhaps come to your rescue. However, the unfortunate part about that was, as far as the U-boat commanders were concerned, they were absolutely thrilled because immediately they got within the convoy and they were noted uh, a flare would go up and they'd be able to see all the ships around so that they could aim their torpedoes with great accuracy. Casualties on these ships were enormous. If you were a crew member on a ship carrying aviation fuel and you were torpedoed, you were dead. 
if you were on a ship carrying diesel oil, the same thing would apply. If you were carrying foodstuffs, it it might take a little while for you to sink, but you were going to die because the water temperatures were so low. The only chance you had was to be on a ship that carried wood. And if you were on a ship carrying wood, the possibilities are that that ship might float a while. There were 156,000 merchant navy or merchant navy guys operating on those convoys, of which 33,000 lost their lives. If you can imagine a chaos at night in a convoy that was being attacked by up to 20 U-boats, then you, you had some vague idea of the possibility of, of these guys surviving, which was almost nil. Water temperatures were so low that they, uh, they wouldn't last long in the water. There were certainly no POW camps. Now, if they did survive, they were considered civilians. So they really had to make their own way home again. They might be dumped somewhere on the south coast of uh, the United Kingdom, but they had to recover from the trauma themselves and they had to present themselves back at the shipping company's offices to ask for another job. Their pay would be stopped because, as the shipping company said, well, you're not earning us any money. You haven't got a ship, so why should we pay you? Now, these conditions were absolutely incredibly bad, but they were just civilians, and, um, and nobody seemed to take notice of it. Now, the reason that the heroism of these people was never noticed was that they, they were civilians. And as that, you know, I, there wasn't one medal of... Uh, to my knowledge, of gallantry ever given to any of these men. And because there was this secrecy about the movements of ships across the Atlantic, there was never any advertising done. In fact, it was just the reverse. If you went into a pub on the south coast of England or anywhere else, you would see all these posters stuck there saying, the walls have ears. Loose lips sink ships, and the the public and everyone else was drilled not to ever mention anything about ships. So consequently, the bomber command would be praised for their efforts and what they were doing. Fighter command pilots were considered young gods. Coastal command guys like merchant navy guys were just ignored completely. And you may not believe it, but there are countries that didn't even consider that they were veterans of the Second World War until 50 years after the end of the war. The flying boat was, to my mind, you know, everyone says, you know, if you stay in an aeroplane, if you strap yourself into an aeroplane for a certain length of time, you get to love it. Well, that was the case with the flying boat. It had a very low top speed. It was loaded with 16 guns. We had uh, four 
machine guns out the tail turret. We had a nose turret. We had two waist point five machine guns out of the waist hatches. We had two um, machine guns out of the galley hatches. And we had uh, two guns in the nose turret and four guns for the pilot to shoot forward. So the Germans didn't like these aeroplanes and invariably they would only tackle them if they had about four fighter aircraft. In fact, one of our our guys managed to escape from eight JU-88s. The aircraft was pretty full of holes when he got back, so he had to beach it instead of uh, mooring it up. The Germans called us the flying porcupine. Our probably most dangerous area to fly in was down into the Bay of Biscay because they could fly uh, at right angles to our patrols. Their aerodromes were on the west coast of France, so they could fly out into the Bay of Biscay hoping to cross our patrols and uh, and they would fly in little squadrons of four to eight JU-88s. The U-boats had almost free range up until 1943. Now, that was prevented to a great extent by being able to use long-range Liberator aircraft which were operated from Northern Ireland and Iceland and uh, with extra tanks, they were the only aircraft that could fill the gap or, or reach the gap or have enough fuel to patrol the gap. And that really meant that uh, it made it a huge difference to the uh, safety of these convoys. That and the advent of, uh, of good radar meant that we could also protect the convoys using radar at night, where when they surfaced, they were in danger of being picked up by our radar. Our technique was to always fly fairly low because a U-boat could crash dive in 30 seconds. Now, that meant that it left very little time for you to, A, identify the radar uh, return and get in the position to attack them. You never flew above, say, 1,500 feet because if you flew any higher to get better visibility, you wouldn't be able to get down in time before the U-boat submerged. You would attack it on radar at 800 metres, or your guess of 800 metres, you would then take over and do a manual uh, attack on the U-boat. We carried eight Torpex jet charges, and these Torpex jet charges were set at 25 feet. So... The possibility of you uh, attacking a U-boat during your long career was pretty remote. I mean, considering the number of flying hours we put in compared with the number of U-boats we attacked, (laughs) there wasn't very many, relatively speaking. You had eight torpedo step charges and you always dropped them all because the chances of you seeing another U-boat 
very remote, and uh, that meant that your aiming could be out by some hundreds of yards, and still you'd uh, you'd uh, damage the the U-boat. You preferably at an angle, you you would uh, drop them across the across the U-boat. Now, since it um, since it's submerged in thirty seconds, many's the time you would have to attack on the swirl that was left as the conning tower went below the surface. And to cover that situation, we had a, a big stopwatch on the combing panel, and uh, there were marks around the con- the um, stopwatch uh, in distances. So. As the um, U-boat crash-dived, you would hit the stopwatch and you would then drop your Torpeak steps charges at the distance on the stopwatch ahead of the swirl. So your assumption was that the U-boat would uh, descend in a straight line, straight ahead. But of course, it, it invariably didn't. It would either turned to port or to starboard. Probably the most difficult part of a uh, U-boat attack was done at night and uh, we would never release our torpedo step charges unless we were at 50 feet. So at night at 50 feet, pretty dangerous flying. Uh, we had a radio altimeter and that's what we used to use. In our particular case in the squadron, um, at 800 yards, the the uh, gunner would drop flares from a tube at the back of the aircraft, and uh, the, these flares would light up the sky to the extent where to, to try and fly the aeroplane visually would be almost impossible. So you had to hand over the, the control of the aircraft to the first officer in the hope that he would maintain 50 feet while the captain uh, controlled the depth charge dropping and decided you know, the distance from the U-boat where he dropped the depth charges. That concludes the second of uh, Andy's Plane Tales and we'll be finishing off his story next week. Awesome second part of the interview, though. Nick, yeah. really enjoy those. I'm so glad that you got a chance to go down and record those. They're fantastic. Yeah, as uh, as things was Liz was saying, that they'll actually make a great family history. There'll be generations of the family that will want to listen to those. Uh, oh, sure. And he's 94. He's doing very well, but uh, he's not going to be with us forever, unfortunately. No, we're well. None of us are going to be here forever. So true. Exactly um, right. True. But, uh, but you know, fl- talking about flying boats, I. I I love, I mean, I wish that I could someday fly a flying boat because uh, that to me would be like, ooh, heaven. It's a place on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm sure it would. Steph, isn't she uh, uh, more of a qualified Steph? Can't you? Uh, Technically, I'm, I'm not current. Um, but I actually need to go back and I should probably do that this summer and, and do my commercial rating for my, uh, airplane single engine C, um, oh, get my commercial certificate for that because that's my only private pilot certificate remaining on my, my ticket there. So 
Really yeah. I'm sure you understand some of the, the problems they had on those those big boats. <laughs> a few, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think my experience has been much different with it than, than what they had. But, um, yeah, it's it's applicable. Yeah. But the, the one I really thing enjoy that, float planes. The one thing that actually uh, gets uh, quite upset was talking about uh, – the uh, the life of the mer- the uh, merchant marine sailors uh, who were in these convoys, and, and not just the the injustice of their efforts not being recognised, or the fact that the moment they uh, were torpedoed, their wages stopped. So if they were like two weeks in a in a boat, and then they like might get rescued and it'd take a month to get back to the UK, the pay just stopped uh, as soon as they were torpedoed. <laughs> And uh, they they literally had to go back to the shipping office and find a new boat, and they didn't start any again until they signed on. Seriously, uh, wow. absolutely, absolutely, that's crazy. <laughs> they were treated very badly. And uh, the the one thing he won't talk about because I I've, I've seen him talk about it um, in front. He was he gave a talk uh, before the mission. Then when they came over to be part of the battle at the Atlantic. Uh, parades that he mentions uh, later on, um, they were a few years ago here in the UK, um, were flying over uh, the, the uh, a wrecked convoy that had been attacked. And it used to happen quite often because initially they would uh, only fly by day because they had no way of finding the uh, submarines at night until they got radar, etc. But he, they, so they would arrive at dawn over a convoy as it came within their range and uh, they would see uh, sunk ships and sailors in the water, and no one was stopping for them. They couldn't land because uh, the boat wasn't capable of landing in open water, the flying boats. Um, and these guys were just uh, drowning. They were dying as they watched, and there was absolutely nothing they could do about it. And when he thinks back to that, he, he gets really quite uh, emotional mm. and upset about it. Why couldn't they op- land in open water? Well, this, the uh, Sunderland could only handle a three-foot swell, um, oh. so, which is which is tiny. You could just don't get that in water. It would mm-hmm. rip the hull open. It would rip the uh, flips off the wings. So uh, they they really were uh, only designed to land in a harbor or on rivers or lakes. Um, they just couldn't handle it. Yeah, That's open horrible. water, rough water is always going to be difficult and challenging for float planes. So wow. That's awful. Well, uh, it's always uh, good to hear from your father, Captain Nick. Um, I'm really envious that you have uh, such a relationship with your dad, and he's still alive. Mine, mine has been gone for quite some time and doesn't have near the, uh, the experience and the stories that your father has, but uh, I'm glad that you're sharing them with us. Oh, I'm a lucky man. Uh, I realize it. Well, uh, looks like we have some um, audio feedback from our main man, Micah. Uh, he got together with First Officer Craig uh, up in Portland, and uh, he sent us some audio feedback. Hello, everyone. This is Micah, your main man in the Maine's most famous diner, Becky's Diner, here in Portland, Maine, with APG's newest first officer, First Officer Craig. Craig, welcome to Portland, Maine. Thank you, Micah. It's a beautiful day here in Portland, and glad to be uh, enjoying breakfast with Micah and 
Breakfast with Micah, we can have our own radio show. Sounds look, good. We do. I like it. Craig, welcome aboard and welcome to APG. And could you tell us a little bit about your flying experience and how you got started being a pilot and flying and getting to where you are as first officer with Acme Junior? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so when I was, uh, I'd say, middle school, my parents uh, worked at a baseball, softball training facility down near uh, BWI, and on weekends they would take my sister and I, and driving on the road to get there uh, was right under the approach end of 3-3 left at BWI, and seeing the southwest planes fly right over got me kind of interested, and it was kind of funny because at the baseball softball training facility, a kid had a laptop and a joystick, and he was playing flight sim there, so I was like, oh, I need to get me one of those. So a few years down the line, I got flight sim, played it on and off here and there, and then when it came down time to look for colleges, my mom was like, you can go to college become a pilot. I was like, you're joking, right? She was like, no, you can't. I was like, all right, let's do it. So looking for colleges, and uh, we found Liberty University down in Lynchburg, Virginia, and they had a school of aeronautics, and that's where I attended. And uh, I finished school early. I went for three and a half years and went from zero flight time to CFII. Wow. Yeah. So got about 300 hours there. I only did it about 500 hours, or excuse me, 50 hours of instructing. And then I found an opportunity with Mokalele Airlines. Long story short, I wasn't in Hawaii, but I was in Pennsylvania doing essential air service routes. We were uh, wetly scout by Southern Airways Express, so I was flying passengers in and out of small towns in Pennsylvania to Pittsburgh. And, a and what were you flying back then? Uh, I was flying a caravan, Cessna 208. That sounds like fun. Oh, it was. It was a great airplane. Really enjoyed it. Uh, it was kind of shoddy equipment on the first officer's side. There was no um, horizontal situation in whenever it came time to shoot an instrument approach, I had to actually look over at the captain's instruments. So oh my! That always made it interesting when it was bumpy and turbulent and bad weather, but it was great experience, a lot of fun, and helped me get to where I am now, which is Republic Airlines, or Acme Jr., and uh, flying the Embraer 170-175, and I'm in about four months so far, and I just hit 75 hours on the plane yesterday, and loving every minute of it. And you're enjoying the 170 and 175? How's it compared to the 208? Oh, a little more power? Mu much better, a lot more power, better equipment. Makes you really lazy though. Does really, it? Really, really lazy. Very automated and a lot of things are taken care of for you. So I hear those uh, the jungle jets overall are a really comfortable plane to fly and I know that as a passenger I've really enjoyed them uh, on uh, on JetBlue flying in the E-190s. I mm -hmm. like them better than uh, than a lot of the other aircraft that, uh, that I've flown on. Very, very comfortable there from a passenger perspective. Yes, and on the pilot side as well, it's very spacious and comfortable in the cockpit and no issues up there. It's very ergonomic, efficient, and very good layout. Now, you had a really interesting experience recently yes. that doesn't happen to a lot of people. Actually, it happens all the time, but it happened really in an unusual and a really strong way for you. Tell us what happened, well, as of this recording last week. Yes, so uh, this past Thursday, uh, some of you might know there were storms on the East Coast, and I was... Uh, we were flying out of DC, took off. It was raining pretty good, and once we got airborne, uh, we saw on the radar it was. 
quite a bit of red, yellow, and orange, but try to make it through, and ATC was trying to help us, and we were about 7,000 feet over, I'd say, the eastern shore of Maryland, and it seemed like there was a fire hose of water being sprayed on the windshield, and then all of a sudden there was a bright flash and a loud bang, and it was lightning, and no flickers or anything to the instruments, everything seemed to be okay, and we were heading to uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and in Providence on the walk around, I noticed that one of the static wicks on the very outboard of the right elevator was charred or melted and ended up having contract maintenance come out and they saw the entry hole and then again reassured that that static wick was actually charred because of, we were struck by lightning. Now, on, on inside, you just saw a flash and heard a bang. Did you feel anything else? Was there any difference with the controls? It just sort of passed right through, and it was just, what was that? Yeah, it just passed right through. If you're blind or deaf, you wouldn't have known we were struck by lightning. It was just a really bright flash and a loud bang, like a gun going off near your head, and that was about it. And uh, I think you had mentioned that, uh, obviously, it was the first time for you, and yep. you're a uh, reasonably new pilot, yep. but that your, uh, your captain, also had not experienced that. Correct. The uh, captain I was flying with was a Czech airman for our company, and he's been with the company for 19 years, and I'm not sure of his prior flight experience, but that was his first lightning strike he had as well. So. so it sounds like, from what I understand, and I don't know very much about lightning strikes, that typically they're not... They don't cause a lot of difficulty, but this was like a major strike in comparison to what usually happens. Is that what you understand? Um, as far as I understand, it was kind of on the, we actually, our company had a handful of lightning strikes that whole week. And uh, I actually flew a plane yesterday that had a lightning strike earlier this week and a good, I'd say six by six portion of the rudder was replaced by theirs on that plane, but on the plane I was flying the day we got struck, it was only, I'd say, a dime-sized hole in the elevator, so I guess it depends where it hits and how strong the lightning bolt is, but... But they wouldn't let you take any passengers on that plane? Correct. At that so point. we had to get a maintenance ferry permit, and we went from Providence to Pittsburgh, which is one of our heavy maintenance bases, and took it there, and they took care of it. Maybe uh, based on this conversation that uh, Jeff and, uh, and Nick can tell us a little bit about their experience with lightning strikes too. Yeah, uh, I think it'd it's, be uh, fun to hear their stories. Yeah. So, what's next? We have uh, today. You're uh, heading back down to uh, DCA, and yep. then uh, and then back up to Hartford. Is that it? Uh, DCA, then up to Bradley International, and okay. then back to DCA, and I'll be done for a few days. Sounds good. Yep. Craig, thanks so much for doing this interview and for the airline pilot guy here in Portland, Maine at Becky's Diner. This is your main man, Micah, with First Officer Craig and signing out. Thanks. Wow, great uh, interview. Thank you, Micah, for sending that in. And yeah, I've had a, a lightning strike, and uh, I, I mean, the worst that happened to us was that the right wing just completely got burned off. But other than no that, big deal. no big deal. No. I mean, well, you're trained for all that, right? Just the right hand wing? God, yeah, love me. Just the right wing. I, I had both wings. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'll tell you I what, Mike, if you're not somewhere across the Atlantic and landed safely, I don't see what the <laughs> That's skill right there. Major yeah, skills. There yeah. Well, the last time it happened to me, the entire plane went up in flames <laughs> and I had to up. jump out with a parachute. So, <laughs> you know? You win. I don't you know win. what to say to you guys. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah.
Well, I have you, to. You're used to jumping out with parachutes, Steph. <laughs> What'd you say, uh, Dana? <laughs> I just want to make one comment. Mike had picked an awesome place to, to to do the interview. Beck, if nobody's ever been to Becky's Diner in Portland, Maine, that place is fantastic. I don't think I've been there, but it sounds like a good place to go. It's really good. It's it's on, on level of Red Hour Diner in, in Manchester. Oh. Well, that's, uh, that's saying something right there. I've had some lightning strikes. In fact, I was kind of surprised when Craig uh, mentioned the fact that his line check airman of 19 years had never had a lightning strike. I'm thinking, really? What? Really? really? I've had like three, I think. In my, I like you once. Probably have more. Probably more than that. Yeah. You probably have more instrument time between the marker and the runway than the line check airman does. After <laughs> well, years we're not going to get regionals. into that. <laughs> we don't want to disparage that line check airman. I'm sure he's a really nice guy. <laughs> he's just been lucky throughout his career. Yeah. You know? Well, he probably flies once a month. So. <laughs> there you go. Probably doesn't fly a lot. You want to hear something interesting? Yes. yes. The only time I've ever been hit by lightning is in an RJ. Really? Ah. I've never been hit on the 88. Ah. Oh, the 90. Hit uh, just once on the 88 and a couple times on the 72. And I should make it abundantly clear that I have never been struck by lightning in an aircraft. What? I'm not taking my GA aircraft anywhere near a thunderstorm. You you didn't? Thank you very I much. thought you like bailed out and with your parachute. And of course that I was did. Not, of course not true. Did. Oh. Nah, it was. Hollywood. Uh, yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm going to try something Sorry to burst your pole. Um, Nev sent some video feedback. Yay. And so we're going to give a, we're going to give this a shot. So let me uh, try to set this up. Hello everyone. Nev here, as you can see. And um, well, today is Wednesday, the 12th of April. And uh, on the 10th of April this week, on Monday, um, we had a fantastic trip over to the London Heathrow Control Tower. Thanks very much to Adam Spink and the press office of uh, NATS, the National Air Traffic Services, that arranged it for us. It was a fantastic day and I went down there with Carlos and Matt and pilot Pip and we did a series of interviews. Uh, Pip did a very good interview for his show and Carlos and Matt did a very good one for theirs. And uh, I did one on behalf of our show, The Airline Pilot Guy. And uh, I think you'll find it quite interesting. And, and all the three interviews that we've done are, are very different in, in many respects. We, we covered a lot of ground. Just to let you know, just to set it up, we uh, went to the tower uh, first thing, uh, just after lunch, in fact. And then um, we, had a, we were there for a good hour and a half, actually, which was, was a fascinating uh, insight. I, fortunately, I had been there before, but um, the, the guys hadn't, and it was a fantastic experience for them. And Adam was so generous with his time, uh, with the explanations about everything as well. So it was a really good uh, day out from that point of view. And then we went into one of the conference rooms uh, next to Adam's office, and we did these series of interviews. As I say, this one's about 10 minutes long. Hope you enjoy it. Hi everybody, it's Nev here, reporting for the Airline Pilot Guy show. And today, here I am at uh, London Heathrow, and uh, Adam Spink has very kindly uh, joined us today to talk about some of the work that he does and some of the operations at NATS um, and some of the things that, that go on here at Heathrow. Thanks very much, Steve, for, okay. for joining us today. Um, we've had a superb tour of the, the tower, Glad you um, enjoyed the it. VCR, really, really interesting. I've got a few questions which I'd mm -hmm. like to ask you. One of them, obviously, is that Heathrow is fairly close to, to full capacity, I would imagine, and so that flow rate is, is really important, getting, mm -hmm. getting good runway utilisation and getting 
everybody on and off uh, at the same, yeah. you know, as quickly mm. as you, you can. Um, in terms of you know the third runway, I mean, there's been discussion about this for you know 15, 16 years now. What sort of additional capacity would would that offer? Do you think? Uh, well, I, I believe the the intention on the part of the government is is that uh, it, it should deliver uh, up to seven hundred and forty thousand movements a year. So. Presently, Heathrow operates at 480,000 movements a year, so it's effectively adding Gatwick onto the side of the current Heathrow. Uh, that's what the, the Davies Commission uh, reported on. So, uh, yeah, so it's a significant increase in, in the and operation. The, the main challenge is with the airport currently, presumably when the weather is, is good, uh, it's not such a big problem, but I guess when you're operating low visibility procedures or there's a reduced flow rate, that, that's quite challenging, I would imagine. Yes, it is. Um, being full to capacity in good weather means that when we have bad weather, um, our flow rate goes down and that has a very significant impact on delays. Uh, a rule of thumb that we use, if the landing rate in good weather is between 40 to 42 aircraft an hour, if the landing rate gets below 38 an hour, um, generally will mean air airlines will have to cancel some of their flights. So anything that we can do to maintain the landing rate as high as possible in bad weather, we will do that. So, for example, um, we have reduced the, the cloud trigger. So when we go into low visibility procedures, there's a visibility trigger and a cloud trigger. We have, over the past 15 years, we have reduced that cloud trigger down to now zero, so we do not consider cloud at all when going into LVPs. And we've now fitted, uh, we call it enhanced ILS systems, all four runway ends, um, which are less susceptible to being bent by aircraft uh, as they vacate the runway, which means that rather than going to six-mile spacing in low visibility, we can go to five-mile spacing, which again provides a, a, a reduced impact of that of that uh, change. Um, and and we are it's con something we're constantly trying to to devise more uh, or to optimise the operation more in low visibility. You've been here at Heathrow for a long time now as an ATCO. What yes, I've, my hair's almost <laughs> gone. Yes. <laughs> what are the most, the, the greatest number of changes that you've seen? What's the most significant change that you've seen over the years? Ah, that's, a, that's an interesting question because on one hand, there hasn't been much change because 20 years ago Heathrow was almost full and today Heathrow is full. Um, but for me, certainly, it's, it's the technology we use and the technology we're developing uh, so even 10 years ago, we had uh, we were running the operation from the old control tower, which has now been demolished, but it, it used to be the big red brick building in the middle of the airfield. And um, the, the VCR, the visual control room, at the top of the control tower, it was very cramped. It was probably about half the size of this room we're in now, um, with lots of people up there um, and handing uh, strips to each other. Uh, so the way, when we control, we're... We're using, uh, in the old days, it was literally a paper strip in a coloured, colour-coded holder that we would pass to each other when we transferred uh, contact of that aircraft from one controller to another. So it was very noisy, very cramped. Um, and obviously, with it being paper, there was no data exchange in the background. Uh, so any data had to be written down on this strip. So you'd, you'd end, uh, when the aircraft departed, you'd end up with a strip that was all written on. It was very confusing to try and decipher what had happened. We moved to the new tower, 
with electronic strips. So what used to be paper is now replicated in a touchscreen environment where you can have a lot of data exchange. There's messages going to the European flow control unit, uh, to other airports around the country, to the control centre at Swanwick. So the, the picture of the air traffic in, in the airport, London area, the UK airspace and the whole of Europe is a lot more accurate because of that data exchange. So, so that's probably the main change that, that I've seen. And I've been part of helping to develop that. Um, and it's, and it, the pace of change is only going to you know, increase as we go into yeah, the future with new technology. Certainly as a passenger, I've noticed that, you know, I mean, I fly into Heathrow probably once a month, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, many years ago, I was, you know, quite often just in, in a hold for 15, 20 minutes. That seems to have reduced right down now. And it's rare that I go around the hold mm. once or, or, or I d- twice. I've noticed the same, actually. Yeah. I, I fly again probably one, once a month, similar to you, with, with various um, work commitments in Europe and and it's something I've I've noticed and remarked on as well in in that you know we are as a as a organization we are trying to reduce the amount of air holding that goes on um, it's very inefficient to have aircraft circling around London at 8 9000 feet in terms of noise emissions um, the more that we can do to del- if there are delays we try and delay the aircraft at their departure airport for example Paris or Amsterdam you might spend another 5 10 minutes on the taxiway there and take off five or ten minutes later, the theory being that when you arrive into London, you should either just do one orbit around the hole for five minutes or less than that and, and come on in. So there are variables to take account of, which means we, we can't get it perfect at the moment, but we're always trying to, to, to improve that. Certainly the weather has a big bearing on that, I would imagine, course, as well. Yes. I've also noticed, noticed lots of what I would call tactical things going on with some of the larger airlines, people that have very tight schedules. They'll actually cancel the short-haul uh, sectors, um, so they won't even, they'll, they'll cancel mm. them so they don't get crew and aircraft out of position. Yes. Is, is yeah. that more and more of a, a common theme? Yes, I think say? so, because, because, again, HETHO is full to capacity, therefore any um, non-nominal uh, occurrence will have a big impact on the operation. Um, so it, it would be better for an airline, for example, um, to, to, like you say, to cancel a flight in advance for tomorrow, to cancel tomorrow's flight, or merge two A319 flights into one 767-operated flight, um, than wait for the event to happen on the day for the bad weather to hit us before they then cancel and you've already got passengers in the terminal. So the, a lot of what we're working on is not specifically to improve our capacity in, in terms of number of flights, but it's to improve the predictability of what's going to happen. If we know what's going to happen, we can tell the airport and the airlines there's this problem, we're going to have a 20% reduction in our capacity in two days' time because of the weather. Start thinking about it now, and the more notice we can give people, the more rebooking can go on, the more flights can So it's far more joined up now, you would yes, say, than ever yes, before? Yes, definitely. I mean, we, we have... Uh, daily teleconferences with, with the airport operator, with the airlines, with the Met Office, with Swanwick, with um, adjacent air traffic control organisations, uh, even on a four or five hourly basis. So everybody should, in theory, know what's going on around them um, and adjacent to them in, in neighbouring airspace. I think it's a very interesting operation here with only the, the two runways. Of course, mm. there, there was uh, a crosswind runway in the old days, uh, yes. two, three. Yep. When that runway w- was in existence, did that have other restrictions on two, seven, right, for, for example? Yes, it, it, it was. Um, <laughs> yes, it did have a lot of restrictions on what, what we could do. When the runway two, three was not being operated as a runway, we would use it as a taxiway. 
and it was a very heavily used taxiway. So as soon as we brought it into use as a runway, obviously we had to, to protect it to the same level as the, the two current runways. Um, it would create a lot of ground congestion and the terminals, as they expanded outwards um, and larger aircraft would operate in, it came to the point where before we could bring runway 23 into operation, we had to remove aircraft from about nine or ten different stands on the eastern side of the airfield because their tail fins were in the protected surfaces of the runway. Um, and that meant we had to have more and more warning of when we needed the runway in operation. And, and like you said, it, runway 23 crossed runway 27 left, so there was an interaction there. And also the, um, the departure uh, end, so where aircraft would line up on runway 27 right, the northern runway, was just at the point where the aircraft arriving on runway 23 were in the flare. So you had to time your takeoff clearances so that an aircraft starting the takeoff roll didn't put full power on, create a lot of jet blast behind and potentially impact the aircraft about to come into land. So it was a very um, interesting operation to observe. Yeah, very difficult to plan for that sort yes. of thing as well, yeah. I would imagine. Mm. But, uh, anyway, I'd like to thank you very much, Ian Adam, for your time today. No it's been a fascinating in, insight into uh, the kind of operation here and, uh, and, and the way it works. Thank no you very much, indeed. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. That's, that's it? I want to hear more. Apparently, that's Excellent that was awesome. production. That was, that was awesome. That was good, wasn't it? That was, that was, that was awesome. Uh, I was like you. I was going, ah, this could go on for another half hour. It'd be great. You're like, Nev, why did you <laughs> cut it off? <laughs> You're like, and done. <laughs> no, thank you very much for doing that, uh, Neville. Um, beautiful job. Yeah. Uh, great interview and uh, wonderful two-camera shot. And, uh, yeah, very professionally done. And we, we probably should point out that I think they were there for the better part of the day. So mm-hmm. I think there's going to be more interviews coming out of this. Um, not only the stuff that they sent to us, but um, the Plane Other Talking shows. UK folks were there, yep. as was Plane Safety Podcast. So um, yeah. in the next coming weeks, I think we're going to hear more from their London Heathrow Tower visit. About one of 58. And Nev just said, yeah, part one of 58. Part one of 58, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, must be a fascinating guy to uh, chat to. I'm looking forward to a chance of getting up there myself one day. You know what? Sure. You know what's best about Adam? He is yeah. a patron of Whoa. the APG, Ooh, as is Nev as well. So we love him. Yeah. Thanks, guys. We really love you guys. And uh, not because of that, of course, because of your professionalism. Just a little bit more because of it. Yeah, more. Yeah. In favor of you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, we're at the three-hour point, but that doesn't matter. It's been a while since we've been doing a show. <laughs> I guess we could it's never stop. stopped us before. No, no, it hasn't. It's, we've gone farther than this. Um, I guess we could stop. I don't know. You guys want to go do a little bit more? Oh, yeah, a couple more. We, we spent a lot of okay. time indulging ourselves at the beginning. We did. We did. Yeah. yeah. It was like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I flew a yeah. trip, blah, blah, blah. Meltdown, blah, blah, blah. So let's get uh, on with the more interesting stuff, which is, of course, our feedback from our from our uh listeners uh which one do you think we should do next how about glenn mentioned glenn yeah Yeah. you should probably glenn from down under let's hear from him hi my fellow apg sufferers it's glenn here from new zealand with some feedback i know it's been a while so i thought i'd send a quick question to nick i see the virgin atlantic are now flying the manchester to san francisco route I was wondering if do you think Acme Red will do the same route? And does Nick think he'll be on that route, or is he stuck on his favourite, his favourite even uh, Lagos run? 
Uh, just why I just throw that question in, just out of curiosity. Anyway, clear skies, tailwinds, and unlimited IPAs to you all. Uh, Glenn out. I love that. I'm going to have to change our sign out. Unlimited That's a better IPAs. One. Yeah, I love that. Unlimited IPAs. That's great. Cheers, Glenn. So, Nick, <laughs> what do you think? Is he, uh, is he pimping you there with the Manchester, San Francisco thing? Yeah, but uh, I don't really like flying out of Manchester, Glenn, so I'm, I'm going to avoid that. Uh, it's just that it's a it's a long way north from me that airfield, so I have to position up the day before overnight in a hotel, do a trip, and apart from that, they uh, they've got the Boeings uh, on that now. A wonderful airplane, that Boeing. You know, it's sleek and shiny, and uh, you know they're really great. And passengers love them. They're easy to fly. The pilots think they're superb. So uh, <laughs> I think they, I think they're great airplanes. And um, I think uh, that Boeing should continue to go from just to, to just San Francisco. That that's fine. Um, I'm happy with Heathrow because it's close to where I live. Uh, and um, we're actually probably going to pick up uh, a San Fran. Uh, I know people who live there hate me saying that, but I thought the whole world called it San Fran. Anyway, uh, I'm, we're going to pick up a San Fran on the A34600, we think, this summer. So uh, that'll uh, that'll give me a bit of a long haul fix. That's that, that's great. Um, but uh, I'm not a I'm not a fan of Manchester. Uh, not in the fact that it, I don't like the city. It's got um, oh, and Captain Al lives up that way, and it's got some fantastic places to go see some lovely uh, pubs and uh, some great uh, indian restaurants it's just that it's not easy for me to uh, get to that's about the only reason that's funny uh the chat room is going uh, who kidnapped nick <laughs> <laughs> so I, it, it's lent i told you this I'm is this is what i have to say this is what i have to say about your your uh Love of Boeing. Yeah, that's what I think of it. No, you don't like Boeing? How could you say No, no. no, I, no I, we I love, I Boeing. love Boeing. That's just how much we believe your love of Boeing. We're not buying it's it. Sorry. Bull crap. <laughs> bull crap. It's so rude. I can't believe it. Come on. No, hey, I, mean, I, I am more than willing to take you at, uh, you know, face value on this one, Nick. I appreciate your turnaround. and. Oh, um, Thank you very much, Jeff. If a pilot is skilled and capable and lovable as Miami Rick uh, wants to fly them, then there's got to be something uh, in them, isn't there? I mean, I say. Okay. I, I think it's I think it's so ladies delusional. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe this uh, the Seder thing had an effect on him. Maybe. Uh, uh -huh. I think he's so. Got some religion or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm part of the cult now. <laughs> It ain't Boeing, I ain't going. Wow. There you, go. oh my God. you have that recorded, right? Some soap. <laughs> yeah, so, can you say that again you more clearly? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, what? <laughs> oh, <it's not. laughs> no problem. Okay, well, I just have to use the first time you said it. <laughs> um, I think you said too much IPA. Yeah. I think he's had too much IPA and he's yeah, you know, been up so. for no, way too many hours. I want a, I want a beautiful malt whiskey now. <laughs> there you go. Oh, my. Wow. I'm jealous. No. Hey, you know, uh, Ken Hoke, he's a UPS 
captain. Yeah. And uh, we've uh, heard him on other great podcasts out there. And uh, this was sent in by Tom Seagraves in the Kansas City area. He said, I accidentally stumbled upon this radio interview with our favorite Acme Brown pilot, Ken Hoke. This was done on a local Louisville radio station. I thought that the other APGers would enjoy this, so please share it when you can. So we're going to put a link to this. This is from the uh, station WFPL.org. And uh, Ken is the the star of this radio program. So thank you, Tom, for sending that in. Um, He was recently on the um, Plain Talking UK. I'm I'm sorry. I've never heard of that show. What, What is that? Never mind. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> Joking there, no, Carlos and uh, Matt. Fine show with Fantastic Carlos Stebbings show. and Matt Smith. Um, yeah, he was nice enough to to join them for a while and read through some of their news stories and talk a little bit about what he does for a living. And if you haven't listened to that one, I don't know what episode it was, but it wasn't that long ago, within the past couple months. Yeah, um, it was. Go back and check it out. Interesting guy. Very, Very recently. Nice. Yeah. Um, the guy that uh, we talked about in an earlier episode that uh, showed up for his flight in uh, Canada um, and he was very, very intoxicated. In fact, so much so, I think he passed out with his head up against the window of the airplane. I don't know. We, I think, was that the one we saw some video of him going through the actual screening process and he, he could barely stand up? I don't I, We've sure had a couple that. episodes of, yeah, or a couple of. Um, incidents of drunk pilots yeah. recently. Anyway, uh, Big Ron, not so Big Ron, uh, sent us a a uh, link to a uh, sky.com um, article regarding the fact that this uh, guy has gotten some jail time, which is, mm-hmm. I think, appropriate. Yeah. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. We're trying to clear these out here at the very end. Um, Matt sent this from a New Zealand. He said, good day team, ex Air New Zealand captain from New Zealand. Just wanted to pass on my congratulations on the success of your show. And I look forward to listening to every week. Sadly, I'm an ex airline pilot guy myself. I started flying at the early age of 13 before gaining my PPL, CPL and ATPL at minimum ages of 17, 18 and 21 respectfully. Wow. Respectively, I started out as a bright young 18-year-old first officer on the Beach 1900 before being fast-tracked to left-hand seat duties, more time to sleep, <laughs> then uh, got fast-tracked through to Boeing 737, 747, 767, 777, and the 787 as well as being a Czech airman on the Airbus A320. Unfortunately, as quick as I got there, I lost it thanks to a heart murmur. So now I spend most of my time living vicariously through my flight sim and teaching young and aspiring pilots to reach high and achieve their goals through the world of online flight simulation. Anyway, folks, just thought I'd drop a message, and as soon as I'm able to, to I'll uh, be a patron on the podcast. Hey, don't worry about it, Matt. I'm looking, uh, also looking at doing a flight sim podcast in the near future, and I'd be honored to have you on the show. Yeah, I think all of us would be happy to mm-hmm. be part of your new flight simulation podcast. Although I think most of us aren't, you know, avid flight simmers ourselves, but uh, ourselves. But um, 
I'd love. Oh, to I, I've it. done a little but Have you? Yeah. Okay. No, 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 and I've certainly got time. some friends who uh, are very keen. Okay. Well, it looks like Captain Nick would be the first guy to go for it then. <laughs> no. but, uh, I'd, be, I'd be happy to uh, to be on the show, uh, Matt. And uh, thank you for being a listener, and thank you for taking the time to send in the feedback. And I'm sorry about the uh, uh, the health issue that uh, took you out of uh, actual flying. But, um, yeah, I'm glad you're there. Mm-hmm. Quickly, I think maybe we'll end with this one. Um, Alex sent in this feedback he goes um hi alex here just wondering why you say acme airlines when it's very easy to find out that you're a captain for blank airlines my real airline well uh alex i do that and all of us here uh do so um captain nick and dana uh, as well as uh rick um we I do it. I, I can only speak for myself. Um, I have not received permission to do um, a podcast and mention the fact that I fly for the major airline that for which I fly um, because I don't want to be uh, people to think that I'm an official spokesperson for uh, the airline. And uh, although I I would hope that they would think that it would be okay that I wouldn't say anything bad. But uh, I love the airline for which I fly, and uh, again, uh, I think it's better just to stay below the radar, and uh, you know, try to stay away from any, you know, issues that I might have in the future if I misrepresent in any way the uh, wonderful well, carrier that I fly for. You know, you just go back to the beginning of the show that we did today, and you look at all the. You know, there's a lot of good that can come from social media and the internet and being out there and you know, voicing your opinion about things. And then sometimes there's a lot of not so good that can come from it. If right. you have a small misstep or you say something that doesn't represent popular opinion or the opinion of the company that you work for. Um, so it just makes sense to not have that tight affiliation and make it clear that everything that we're doing here is on ourselves. It's not for the people that we work for. Um, we don't want to misrepresent anything that way. Uh, because it can really uh, things take off the right way exactly and as i said i think i could speak for both dana and i and and captain nick too his affiliation with a uh, carrier that we call acme red that we are all proud of the uh, airlines that we fly for our actual employers but again we don't want to do anything uh, that would be a negative thing uh, for them and uh because we love love our jobs, <laughs> we don't want to lose lose our jobs. So uh, I think yeah, that uh, if you if you just here, you know, I talk about flying the MD eighty eight and the MD ninety, and I'm based in Atlanta. Just do a Google search; you can figure out who I fly for, right? So you know, I've known you for how all these years. I have no idea. You have no idea? Yeah. Well, I'm just clueless. Well, I'm not even sure you're a pilot. I'm a little. Slow. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm a little that is debatable. <laughs> He got his license out of one of those little, uh, you know, gumball uh, machines at the supermarket when you're going out. Yeah. You put a quarter uh, in there. Online. Oh, that's how he got his, it. Uh, just like a cereal packet of breakfast. Yeah. Just like you can become a. Uh, all these, oh, yeah, that all one these too. years I've known Jeff, he, he he's never said specifically the company he works for, even in, <laughs> you know, individual conversation. It's just like those you know, online. You can become a uh, like a, uh, a a cleric or a a, a religious uh, a pastor. Yes, yes. 
you know, you know, it's the same thing. It just you, you, just Google it. You'll you'll figure out a way to get your license. Or all I have to do is look behind you, Jeff. Pardon me. Just look behind you. Your hat's hanging on the. Oh yeah, well that I mean I bought that on eBay. <laughs> yeah, I've got my life on eBay. Too. Captain Nick has one too. Captain yeah. Nick. <laughs> I'm not really. Do it. I'm not even an airline pilot. <laughs> I don't even to be an airline pilot. Oh, yeah, we're kidding. we're just all making this stuff up, but it's a lot of fun, and most people believe us. So you know, yeah. which is good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Anywho, uh, I think it's time to shut it down. Uh, you know, I really, really appreciate everybody, especially my crew and uh, those of you who are uh, the diehard fans, uh, 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 people that are hanging with us in the chat room, and all of you who have uh, downloaded the show, uh, thousands of you, and uh, uh, you really mean a lot to us. And, and we do really appreciate the fact that you take the time to listen to our show every week. And uh, we... Uh, we put a lot of work into this, and uh, it is a labor of love for us. And uh, I can't—I I really can't tell you how much uh, it means to us, especially those of, the, of you who support us financially. So, uh, if you want to learn more about the show, if you're new to the show, um, please check out this wonderful website. Uh, Arash um, puts uh, does a fantastic job with our website, uh, airlinepilotguide.com. You can find uh, information about the crew. The, uh, the community, the uh, coffee fund, and uh, other stuff there. And uh, we have some uh, apps for uh, the mobile platforms, uh, both iOS and Android. And uh, information about that can be found in the show notes. Again, airlinepilotguide.com. You can find the information there. And uh, let's see. We're also on social media. Uh, some of us more than others, especially this last week. Uh, but Steph... She's a uh, social media expert. Go ahead. I've been designated as such. I yes. don't know if I would that That's I have the credentials, but uh, <laughs> if you would like to find us on social media, you can go to Twitter. That's probably the best place to find us. We're all together at APG Crew on Twitter. Um, posted at the top of that page, there's our individual Twitter accounts. Dana, have we added you? We need to do that. If we have not, I'll make sure we do that soon when I get around to it. I think I he's pouting. He's not saying a thing. I know. Apparently, I'll get to it. We have not done that. <laughs> um, actually, my bandwidth is bad. I'm only hearing every other about every fourth. Oh, we were saying oh, good. Talking to me. really it. nice things about you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Twitter. Um, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Um, stuff gets posted there occasionally. You can send stuff to us. Different links will interact most of the time, or at least Nick will. And uh, there's also another app, not our app, but it's called Slack. And it's basically a perpetual chat room, also a place to post different um, uh, information about events, meetups, uh, things going on in the community that might be of interest to others. If you would like to join the Slack community, you actually have to go to Twitter get in touch with our uh, airline pilot guy community member Hillel he's at hi11e1 hi11e1 I know I said that kind of fast the first time around and he will need your email address so that he can send you an invitation to join the slack team and that basically sums it up for social media well said well said uh, thank you Steph and why am I pouting 
I don't know. Why are you? I, I don't know. Why are you? Know, you I should be happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, must I was actually thinking, cool. I was actually setting my alarm clock for tomorrow morning before I forgot. Oh, yikes. Well, thank you for uh, for staying up late, Dana. Um, hope, yep. you know, get a good quality not sleep. As, not, not, not nearly as late as Nick. Yeah, that's true. Thank you, Nick. Uh, oh, for... Jesus, nearly too. Uh, by the way, uh, when anyone asks me what airline I uh, belong to, I always say British Airways. <laughs> I, can get, I can get away with blue murder. That's funny because I say United. <laughs> Let's go to the bar and have some more drinks. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. JetBlue. And everyone needs Jet to know Blue. that this is all said in jest. Of course, <laughs> we're not serious about anything, really. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, we we love all of you out there, um, uh, our chat room folks, and uh, the the folks that are downloading the show. I mean, without you, yeah, we'd just be a couple uh, folks talking about aviation by ourselves. <laughs> I think we would do it anyway, though. We probably would. Yeah, probably would do it anyway. But don't tell them that stuff because then they're not going to support the show financially. Stop it. <laughs> we would give up and go yeah. into the corner and hide and That's feel right. sorry for ourselves all That's day right. long anyway so thanks everyone for uh, for joining us and uh, we look forward to seeing you again on next week's show and until then wishing you clear skies unlimited visibility and unlimited IPAs take care god bless IPAs y'all woo yeah good night IPAs. everybody cheers adios Day. WAPG Airline Pilot Cow